one. Alright, hello and willkommen. Bienvenue, konnichiwa, ni hao, jambo. It's time for the Army's Inquisition yet again. Uh, episode 156 on Sunday the 25th of October. I'm Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben. I'm Armish Matt. And tonight's guest is a, an author, blogger, lecturer and a true free thinker. You can go to true free... Th- <laughs> I can't even <laughs> say it. <laughs> See, you can say that five times fast. I can't say it was slow. <laughs> Go to truefreethinker.com to find out more. Ken, Ami, how are we doing? Great, thank you for having me. Is it Ami or Ami or Ami? Ami, just fine. Cool. I was just saying before that I was looking through some of your book titles and there's such a wide range of stuff that you're researching and writing about. How on earth did you get into this? Ooh, that is potentially a really long story, but uh, as far back as far back as I can recall, I was, uh, I guess, interested in reality itself, what really is real and what isn't. And starting in as far back as I can pinpoint it, in sixth grade, so I guess 11 years old or so, I would go to the this place that's called the library. <laughs> where they have these things called books. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I would, my main interests were cryptozoology, <clears throat> UFOs and aliens and witchcraft back then. That's, that's what I started reading about at my tender age. And so that, that kind of has never gone away though. Those sorts of interest. Um, I can't say I've devoted my life to the study of those things, but um, certainly, like you said, yeah, from my book titles, you can say that's something that's kind of stuck with me. Well, cryptozoology, you're talking about things like <clears throat> Bigfoot and Mothman and uh, Flannel Man and all these sorts of different uh, entities that people um, report seeing. But it seems like a lot of your more recent works more focused on theology. Yes, definitely. So how's that, and, how's that transition? And, Oh, woof. well, see, that was all part of it. That is uh, part of my interest in seeking truth. Led me, um, going through quite a few different paths and uh, a lot, a lot of life experience uh, led me to there. So now I essentially have almost the same interests, but the difference is the worldview through which I look at them now. And that's what landed me also in the main topic that got us connected together is that the issue of Nephilim and giants. Right. So this is something that goes back to the Old Testament, isn't it? Right. Um, and the books of Enoch, I guess, which aren't part of the, the Bible as we know it. But they figure quite right. prominently, don't they, in the books of Enoch as well? Yes, as well as other. Uh, a book of Enoch is something that would be categorized as a pseudepigraphical text. 
don't ask me why, but scholars like to invent clever names, right? You already have the term apocrypha. That isn't good enough. Let's make up pseudepigrapha. (laughs) (laughs) And that's like a span of time, right? So uh, a few hundred years BC to a few hundred years AD, any text written during that time that's not canon is pseudepigrapha. Again, don't ask me why. That's just, I guess scholars need something to do. And does that play, I suppose, that the Gnostic text would fall into that category as well, would they? Uh, they? They could technically, but then again, they want to refer to them as Gnostic texts, right? They want to um, lay out a specific category for those. And I mean, uh, okay, so this stuff is technical, really, because then you have New Testament Apocrypha, which is technically pseudopigrapha, so... I mean, you have Old Testament Apocrypha, and then you have Old Testament Pseudepigrapha. But since they're not canon, it's just a separate category. I don't know. It's one of those things. You could, yeah, if you go get technical about it, it's it's just all fancy categories and terms. Let's just say ancient literature. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, that sort of is an all-encompassing sort of term that would make more sense to me. <laughs> I'm I'm interested in this concept of the true free thinker. I said it right that time. Because, I mean, it occurs to me that if you, if you went down the street, Ken, and asked 100 people, are you a, a free thinker? 99 out of 100 are going to say, yeah, of course I am, aren't they? But I'm guessing you maybe have, a, maybe have an issue with that. Well, again... Um there's always common parlance, right? And then there's technical definitions, and they differ. So on a common parlance level, sure, everybody wants to be uh, think of themselves as a free thinker. But then um, uh, on a technical level, there are certain people who could not cogently refer to themselves as such. For example, if someone's a strict reductionist, like a physicalist or a naturalist or a materialist, and they believe that their brains uh, consist of a accidental and random mixture of biochemicals that produce neural reactions that we call thoughts, then they really can't be a true free thinker or a free thinker at all. Because those chemicals are predestined to do what they do by the laws of thermodynamics. So you're, you cannot, how how could you, um, along your evolutionary path, accidentally um, gain the capability of uh, bypassing the laws of thermodynamics? Right. So this is, this is what, um, people like that some of the new atheists like Sam Harris talk about, about the lack of free will, don't they? Right. Or or that it's an illusion rather, maybe it's illusory. Right. And that's the problem they have is first they want to argue us into a position of physicalism and reductionism. And so that we're, I'll tell you a friend of mine, for instance, I was at his house and he offered me some soda to drink. And I said, I I hardly ever drink soda. And he says, why? I said, it's just a bunch of chemicals. And he said, well, so are you. (laughs) So so first they want to talk us into that position. And then they want to say, well, regardless though, uh, you can't live this way. Right. Um, 
you can't live thinking of yourself and your fellow humans as a, a biological sausage, right? Just a, a bunch of chemicals. You can't live that way. And so set that aside <laughs> and, and let's try to talk about how we don't actually have free will, but it's an illusion. And well, then we might as well go with it because then it's still... Uh, pro- provides us some sort of way to hold people accountable for their actions. Right? So they want their cake, they want to eat it, and they don't want to get fat. <laughs> well, it opens up, a compl- what you mentioned there about being held accountable for your actions. I mean, it's like prosecuting crimes. I mean, if there's no such thing as free will, could you argue against prisons and, and no, no punishment for um, criminals? You end, well, up, you end um, up in this this, awk, this awful place that you're trying to defend. See, that, that's what's interesting is atheists will generally argue against, um, let's say, specifically biblical ethics on the basis that, well, it's just a control system that, you know, human beings invented along the way. Uh, but then they want to say, well, but we need to hold people accountable for their actions. Well, that's a control system. <laughs> I mean, every healthy society functions under a control system. Right. That can't be just a scare tactic. It's, it's actually real. You have to have a way to control what people do as to the best of our ability within, you know, within certain boundaries, of course. And yeah. so they'll appeal to concepts such as, well, let's say that there's a, a person who is um, – a sociopath or a psychopath or just has various other mental ailments who takes it upon themselves to commit certain crimes, but we can't judge them on the same level that we could a mentally sound person. So there, there is something to that. We, we, we have a, a system of laws that are specific to considering whether the person committed what's called the f- murder in the first degree, second degree, or a crime of passion or manslaughter, we have all these various categories to take into account, specifically what sort of crime it was and what was the person's ability. Uh, this is also why we have juvenile courts versus adult courts and things like that. We, we have to take all those things into consideration. So again, yeah, they, they want to talk us, into taking a reductionist kind of view and then say, well, we can't really live that way. And that's something that's been argued against atheists for a very long time. Mm. It's unlivable. You can't actually live out that worldview. Yeah, you have to find some moral authority from somewhere. And if it's not from a higher place, then where do you derive that? that value from, that judgment. Right. I mean, consider the Nuremberg trials for the Nazis, right? The Nazis brilliantly said, we're just following orders, right? It was the zeitgeist of our culture. Our authoritative leaders told us to do these things, and we did them. And the reply was, well, but there's yet a higher law. Now, at that point, you either say, well, it's uh, derived from God or derived from the nation that came along and beat yours. Right. So it's like a survival of the fittest scheme. So what, what happens if that, in that, that nation then gets beaten and by one that says, you know what, the Nazis were right after all. See, this is a problem why I actually wrote a book about that. 
Nazism, Communism, and entitled it From Zeitgeist to Poltergeist. Right? I mean, what happens when the moral zeitgeist of any given culture turns into a poltergeist? What happens then? Because you're telling us, just go with the zeitgeist. And, well, what if it doesn't go in the direction that you presuppose it should go? <laughs> what, what do you mean by turning it into a poltergeist? Is that... So, no, so as, as a term and a concept, zeitgeist is the sort of thing, a uh, sort of concept that Richard Dawkins, for example, likes to use. So the moral zeitgeist of any culture is the spirit of the age, right? Yeah. The way things are going within the culture, that would be the zeitgeist. Yeah. And so what happens when it goes like in Nazi Germany? Things are going along, and all of a sudden, this group takes over, and actually they're elected in the Nazi party. And all of a sudden, for a large portion of the German populace, all of a sudden, um, the zeitgeist isn't going in the, rush, in the direction they would like to see it go. It turns into a poltergeist, right? Yeah. A noisy, yeah. troublesome, violent spirit. Right. And then what? If your basis for ethics is whatever the culture happens to be doing, then, then what? Then what? And, and it, it almost becomes a survival of the fittest scheme at that point. Yeah, and if, if you, I suppose this is sort of a danger with democracies in a way, in that um, it's the rule of the many, and regardless of what the moral standing of that view or outlook is of the many, um, that wins out in our system. It's like the, the ancient Greeks thought that we should be ruled by philosopher kings, didn't they? the wisest and the best, and that they should have sort of hegemony over power rather than uh, one man, one vote, because of the, you know the, it is a precarious position to be in, a democracy. Yes. And a lot of people also confuse ethical for legal. <laughs> if something is legal, they'll say, well, therefore it's good. Therefore it is ethical. Well, that's not necessarily <laughs> the case. Right, yeah, I mean, one thing, one sort of example I could think of would maybe be the death penalty. That's something we don't have in our country, but you have in mm. certain states, isn't it? And, right. you know, ethically, I, I kind of struggle with the death penalty. I struggle with the state having the power to execute an individual. And um, I think the problem is that even... When people support the death penalty, they would have to admit that it is a risky option because we've seen many cases of people who have been incarcerated for years, if not decades, and then the crime gets reinvestigated and, oh, guess what? They didn't do it after all. Yeah, I think the, the ethical argument against it is that you only need to make, you only need to get it one wrong once to invalidate yes. it as a, yeah. as a system. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't necessarily oppose the death penalty, but I think I would not want to be in the position of uh, pressing that button. It's just, like I, like you said, it's you, you don't get a take back. No, and it's and all, you, yeah. sorry, it's always been an argument against instituting the death penalty is that your conviction rate will fall because of this pressure on the jurors, isn't mm. it? But, yeah, I didn't think we were going to be talking about the death penalty tonight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no. Should we go back to uh, the Nephilim? <laughs> sure. 
because yeah, you, you were saying that's how we got in touch. I think you were, I think you commented on one on one of our recent videos. We Adam Stokes, wasn't it, when we were talking about the uh, the Giants and the Nephilim and the heroes of old and all this. What's yes, uh, it was. It was the show with oh, I'm trying to find. It was uh, I believe his name was Alex Adam. Adam. Yeah. Um, Adam Stokes, it was. Right. I actually just emailed him today. All right. Because I was curious about some of the things he stated, so I was hoping for a little clarification or some resources or something. What's um, what's your sort of research over the Nephilim and the Giants? What sort of conclusions have, have they, has that led to you, and what's your position on them? Well, now, the way you phrase that question is very important, and I'm glad you did so. You asked about the Nephilim and the Giants. Yeah. And it is absolutely key that we separate those two for more than one reason. Because I do often uh, run into the phrase Nephilim Giants. Right. Okay. See, that's different than Nephilim and Giants, because... Now we have two categories to deal with, and they're important. Linguistically, it's important because obviously one of them is a very specific Hebrew term, and the other one is a vague, generic, subjective, and undefined English term. So that alone shows us we need to have these in different categories. Now, maybe eventually, after we define what giant means, maybe eventually you can compound them. But at the outset of a discussion, we need to go over the groundwork. At least that's my common practice. So Nephilim, the term itself, is argued about. Forget who they were. Just the the word is argued over. (laughs) So let's start there. Go ahead. Because some claim um, that it derives from a Hebrew root nafal, which would then mean fall or fallen or fallen one. Uh, But some argue that it derives from an Aramaic root, nephilah. And now here's where it gets uh, a little tricky, because you have qualified scholars, such as Dr. Michael Heiser, who says that the Aramaic nafilah means giant. Mm. Okay, now, at that point, um, I would say it begs the question, because we still don't know what giant means. But let's, that's fine. Let's, we can pause there. Nafilah means giant. Okay. However, the J. Edward Wright Endowed Professor of Judaic Studies who is J. Edward Wright himself, who is a PhD and is the director of the Arizona Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Arizona. He wrote, the term traditionally translated as giants in both the Greek Septuagint and now the English is Nephilim, a term based on the root meaning to fall. It has nothing to do with size. And then he specifically goes on to state that that's true for both the Hebrew and the Aramaic. Quote, the root nafal in Aramaic also means fall and not giants. 
Could he have been uh, really big guys who just trips over a lot? And therefore, uh, <laughs> you're just <laughs> falling over. Yeah. You're falling Maybe all not. over yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you do, Ben, isn't it? Well, that's it. I'm trying to find a, a kindred uh, history. <laughs> Why, how, how tall are you, if I may? Uh, I'm not that tall. Six foot two. Okay, well, I'm six even, and my wife calls me a giant all the time. Wow. And you don't and fall I, over as much as I do. Well, no, I'm, I'm an infamous uh, oaf of a klutz. <laughs> I, think, I mean, yeah. infamous, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm with you on that score as well. <laughs> Sorry, so, I interject. It was, it was getting interesting. And I, I put my, no, but they, see, that's an important point. Because why is it I'm six foot tall in modern day North America, but I'm called the giant and I've been referred to as a giant many, many times in my life. Now, why is that? Because six foot tall in North America is not that impressive. (laughs) So that shows you something about the absolutely subjective nature Mm. of that term. And that's why I said when Michael Heiser says Nafiullah means giant, he hasn't told me anything because I still don't know what he means. Now, I do, I do happen to know what he means because I've read his works. But so we're not even done uh, dealing with a word yet, much less anything else. But, I mean, this is, to me, what's incredibly important. If we never get to anything else, at least to get people to understand, you need to talk about these things before you jump into the middle of a discussion. And people are talking about giants and for instance, I could think of five or six different definitions of giant. So how could we have a discussion about it unless we go through all this trudgery first? So the point here was that, uh, well, we have two qualified scholars who disagree on this. Well, okay, so be it. I guess they'll have to just uh, battle it out amongst themselves. We can, we can just claim that um, there's something known as the word concept fallacy, Um, so it means that there's a difference between a word and a concept. So I can be referred to by the word giant, but the concept is that I'm not really gigantic. I'm I'm average. Okay. So that's, that's important to keep in mind. So in a manner of speaking, regardless of what the word Nephilim means and whether it's from the Hebrew Nephal or Aramaic Nephilah, let's talk about the concept. That's sort of a way to just cut through all of this, um, except we'll have to tackle the word giant next. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's, what's fascinating about Nephilim is they first appear in Genesis 6. Um, essentially, their whole story is told in three verses, and those mere three verses have led to millennia worth of discussion, millennia. And because if you're, that's part of why I think it is because it's so succinct that people read it and wonder, wow, what is all this about? And because when you read it, all of a sudden you're confronted with the issues of who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of men? When was that? When were those days? When was after that? Who are the Nephilim? And so each one of those issues is potentially incredibly complicated. So it's led to, like I said, millennia's worth of discussions. Still going on today. Going on to this day. And um, particularly during the Second Temple period, which is like we talked about earlier, where the pseudepigraphical texts were written, and also a lot of rabbinic literature 
the issue is the second temple period in my mind it's interesting and i think we can learn a lot from it in terms of uh, cultural context historical context and grammatical context but it is well known as a period of wild speculation and i'm talking wild mm. <laughs> and so one of the issues is we don't know why those people wrote what they wrote we don't know if they were necessarily claiming to be inspired by God. We don't know if they were writing historical fiction. We don't know if they were claiming to have a new ins- we don't. We just don't know. So all we yeah. could do is read the texts and make them what we will. The three, the three verses that you mentioned from, from Genesis 6, just for, for people who aren't familiar, what, what are the main points that the, the Nephilim are referenced to as far as, you know, coming down and, and knocking up the sons of uh, daughters of men and all that. Okay, so to begin with, it was the sons of God who did that. It was in the Nephilim. So I read it. Um, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man, for he is also flesh, and his day shall be 120 years. The, there were Nephilim of the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So that's why in that succinct couple of verses there, there's so much to deal with if you care to, <laughs> to dig uh, those rabbit holes, right? Yeah. So, so sons of uh, sons of God. I mean, what what's the difference between Nephilim and the sons of God that I referenced there? So it would be that the Nephilim are the offspring of the mating between the sons of God and the daughters of men. That's the, that's it, right? Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The. The verse is the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. Does that, is that, I mean, I, I've, I've just read that literally and thought, oh, they dug their way out <laughs> and met all these daughters of men. But I mean, I know that, that there are people out there who, who have um, referenced their idea that the Nephilim are, Nephilim are, you know, extraterrestrial or whatever, but the fact that that this says they were in the earth in those days. I mean, that's just going to throw fuel on the fire, isn't it? And people are just are going to say things like, oh, the aliens are in the earth. And then they, they, came, they came, they were here all the time. I mean, that's, uh, was that Men in Black or Independence Day or one of them? Where, where, I can't remember the one where the, where the, the thing comes down and they, they come up. Um, uh, War of the, the Worlds. Worlds. War of the Worlds, yeah. There's, yeah. yes. Well, of course, they they had come to Earth long before and just um, hibernated on the. Or actually, they had their craft in the Earth, and then they came down on lightning bolts. Remember? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, fascinating yeah. how many aliens come to Earth um, in the way that Jesus said he saw Satan fall to Earth as lightning. <laughs> mm. That's something to ponder. Yeah, I think. Are you insinuating that that might be accidentally on purpose? Um, 
I don't want to deviate from oh, yeah. um, our train of thought, but but I will say this much: when if you're studying aliens, and by the way, yes, that is a word we would have to spend some time defining, <laughs> <laughs> and UFOs, another word we would have to spend some time defining. You'll inevitably find that the yo cult is never far away, ever. It just—it's inevitable. It's right there. There. So be that as it may, yeah. where were we? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would necessarily read uh, the in the earth as meaning literally underground, um, because the text is telling you that they are the offspring of mating. So contextually, I would not see any reason to think um, anything other than that they're just hanging around there on the earth because that's where they were born. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's the sons of the sons of God, which are what would you call them? Sort of, are we speculating they were some sort of hybrid uh, creature or supernatural creature that came and maybe possessed men or mated with women as they were in whatever form they were, and then the offspring of these women—that's the Nephilim. That's uh, that Aliens prequel. Um, what is it? Prometheus. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, Prometheus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote a book uh, reviewing the entire Aliens and Predator uh, movie uh, franchises. And yeah, Ridley Scott was very plain about how he was writing um, within the genre of uh, historical fiction based on the Old Testament. No question about it. Yeah. So, um, I, I, I'm going to apologize for how often I, I'm going to have to say I wrote a book about this, but I just find that after a while, if I've written an entire book and I'm giving you one sentence, I might as well direct the interested reader to it. But it's just, for, you know, Absolutely. at this point, it's like, it's yeah. inevitable. So I wrote one title on the Genesis 6 Affairs, Sons of God, Angels or Not. And that book is just basically, um, historically, who took which view of who the sons of God are from the earliest possible sources in the B.C. days till about 500 A.D. So I covered almost a thousand years. And the majority, uh, the traditional and the original view is the angel view. Um, amongst both the earliest Jews and Christians alike, and, you know, when Jews and Christians agree on something, we should pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's whether somebody likes it or not, whether they disagree or not. I'm just saying it's that's just a historical fact. and It's verifiable. So now the issue is that biblically angels look just like human males. Uh, no wings, no halos. That's it. They look just like human males, and there's no biblical statement about how they shapeshift or they take on human bodies or any any such thing. It just doesn't exist. So every indication we have is that they are, the way I explain it is angels are as physical as Jesus is post-resurrection in that he can be touched, he can eat, he can be seen, but... He can uh, be visible or invisible, right? So they have access to other, whatever you want to call them, realms, dimensions uh, that we don't. 
But in terms of interacting in our physical world, they're just as physical as we are. They're just in what we would turn an unfallen body or a glorified body. But so that's what makes uh, the angel view so commonsensical. You have a being that looks like a human male and mating with with a human female. It's not that difficult. And that instantly explains why it is only uh, strictly male sons of God and strictly female daughters of men. Because all the sons of God are male. So they had human wives that were all female. That's, it's very, uh, makes a lot of sense of the way the text uh, states it for us. Because this all, he, um, sorry, Ken. No, go right ahead. I was going to say, this all happens just before uh, the flood, doesn't it, in the Bible? Yes. So is it's the reason for is it not? <laughs> that that's a, is it a, a consequence of the uh, you know the horizontal mambo between the sons of God <laughs> and the, the daughters of men messing up the uh, the gene pool as it were? I would say that that is a speculation. It's a reasonable one, but I couldn't say that's what the text says, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> yeah, no, sorry, I don't get many reasonable uh, explanations assigned to me. You get you get half an attaboy for that, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, um, the more I think about the Bible, the less I think of it as a theological text, and the more I think about it as an anthropological text. Because anything it tells us, anything, is inevitably within the context of human beings, Right, our origins, our fall, our redemption. So anything it tells us, it'll eventually have to do with us. So in this case, this is why I only read up to verse 4, because once you get to verse 5, boom, then the focus is on humanity. Right? Uh, God saw the wickedness of man was greater up in the earth. By the way, there you go, in the <laughs> earth. So human beings were being wicked underground, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. So now, and then, then it goes on from there to talk about Noah and the flood. But the, the thing is, the, 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 this concept of the problem with humanity, the premise is what happened between the daughters of man and the sons of God. And so that's why it's a reasonable speculation. It's because the two are tied together with the text. So can you get specific enough in the text to, to get into genetics and all these things? Not necessarily, but uh, the speculation is sound as far as I'm concerned. I was reading, um, sorry, go on, Ken. So then the issue becomes something I think Phil either touched upon or was going to say that it, it seems like whatever the these offspring and the mating um, had something to do with the reason for the flood, right? Mm. Okay, so now let's think about this. If even part of God's reasons for the flood was to be rid of Nephilim, then any concept of post-flood Nephilim would imply that God failed. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay, that's very important. And we're specifically told eight people and some animals survived. (laughs) Okay, so now you have another problem. Nephilim did not survive the flood. 
Now, so if someone wants to argue post-flood Nephilim, they're going to have to literally invent a way to get them through the flood, either by surviving or by whatever, genetics or another incursion of angels coming to earth. or They're going to have to invent it because it's not in the text. Does, um, I read um, Gary Wayne's book last year, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and it's it's a while since I read it, but doesn't he argue for Nephilim surviving? I can't remember. Well, most, essentially, if you're reading any of those books, and I think if you saw the subtitle to my pop researcher's book, you know I've looked at everything. Yeah. <laughs> And maybe I should just make a statement about that um, for a moment, because, of course, who, who's kind of me to talk about this stuff? Well, I'm really nobody. But the thing is, I wrote one book about what the Bible says about these issues, and I thought that would be it. Okay, I'm done with this. But then I thought, oh, man, okay, I'll write another book about what the non-biblical ancient texts say about it. And then I thought, okay, now I'm done with this stuff. And they, oh, okay, I'm going to write a book about what scholarly academics have to say about it. So there's that book. And then I thought, well, okay, I wrote another one. What do the, what I call the pop researchers say about it? So these are the guys you will most likely encounter when you're looking online mm-hmm. for this stuff. And so I've studied in detail what the Bible says, extra biblical texts say, scholars say, and just the regular pop pop guys and i call them pop because they're not necessarily credentialed but they're very popular on this issue some of them literally make their living off of this stuff yeah uh, i wouldn't mind doing that myself by the way <laughs> but it doesn't seem to be happening um and, and so yes um the overwhelming majority of people speaking on this stuff somehow get nephilim past the flood either by surviving or by returning genetically or by returning through um more fallen angels doing the same thing post-flood. Which, again, none of that is in the Bible, and all of it implies that that God failed because God missed that loophole. He didn't think of that. By golly, he wanted to be rid of them, but they just figured out a way to get one over on him. So, I mean, that's a problem. It's a genuine problem. (laughs) And so we're going to get to, because in the Bible, there is a post-flood reference to Nephilim, Okay. We'll get to that in a moment. So let's um, talk about giants, shall we? Yeah. Uh, As I noted, that's a vague, generic, subjective, and undefined term. And so what does it mean? Every one of us might have a different idea. So are we talking about a metaphor like, oh, he's a giant of industry? Okay, we can, that's a definition, but we can set it aside. Uh, okay, it means something about unusual height, okay, but unusual is subjective. So is it a couple of inches taller than average? And the average would be subjective as well. Or is it a few feet taller than average? Or is it entire body lengths taller than average? So you see, people could mean very different things when they use the word giant. And so, linguistically, let's go back to Genesis 6. Now, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, or the LXX. And the 
Septuagint translators, I can't even say they translated the word Nephilim. They rendered it as gigantes. Okay, now gigantes literally means earth-born. And it implies nothing about height. It's, uh, it is a term that combines the, okay, th- this ultimately is a term that you'll see used in Greek mythology about titans, okay? And the origin of the titans is said to have been the sky mating with the earth. The, the personification of the sky and earth um, in the form of Greek deities mating together in producing the titans, right? Which is interesting because we're saying that the sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are women of <laughs> humans of the earth. So the Greeks just call it sky and earth. It's, it's the same thing, really, when you get down to it. Um, and so there's a problem with the Septuagint, which is we don't know why they translated the way they translated it, but that's what they did. The problem is they also rendered Rephaim as gigantes, and they also rendered Giborim as gigantes. And it's generally a terrible idea to render more than one word using just one word, because inevitably it causes confusion. I mean, Nephilim, Rephaim, Giborim, they're not the same word. They don't even sound alike, except for the im ending, which is just the male plural ending. So why would they do that? I have no idea, but it caused a problem that's haunting us until this day. So for one, Nephilim are strictly pre-flood hybrids. Rephaim are strictly post-flood, regular good old humans. And Giborim, it's, it's just a descriptive term meaning might or mighty. And what's strange is the way they rendered it Genesis 6-4 in the Greek tells us that the Nephilim became, okay, it tells us the gigantes became gigantes, which is nonsensical, (laughs) right? You don't become something you already are. But in the Greek, it would tell you that there were gigantes in the earth in those days and also after that, yada, 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 and they became gigantes, men of renown. Well, it just shows you that there's a problem there. Now, English versions who took after the Septuagint uh, just changed gigante to giant. Okay, and they render Nephilim and Raphaim as giant. Thankfully, they tended to drop Giborim. They just keep it as mighty or might. So they fixed that problem. Mm. But so the problem becomes a lot of people talk about this issue by chasing an English word across a Hebrew Bible. And they don't seem to recognize that there's different Hebrew words behind the word giant, or that even if they don't want to bother looking at the Hebrew, they should contextually just think, wait a minute, giants lived pre-flood. They didn't survive. There's giants after the flood. Something has to be different about these giants than those giants. But see, a lot of the pop researchers and a lot of scholars even, that's when they start inventing ways to get them into the post-flood era. Right. Right. So at this point, we have to say that in in ancient linguistic terms, 
what we say as giants, what they said as gigantes, the term itself doesn't imply anything about height. It might have taken on that meaning later in history, but not originally. One of the ways it took on that meaning down the line is because it's used of the Titans. But then again, there's not just one generation of Titans in Greek mythology, and they also vary drastically. Like by the later generations, you have Titans that are said to have 100 arms and the, the upper body of a humanoid, but the lower body of a serpent, and all kinds of crazy things. And there's also, if I may, a problem with claiming, okay, uh, gigantes is used of titans in Greek mythology, and gigantes is used of Nephilim in the Bible, and titans were very tall, so Nephilim were very tall. Okay, hold on a minute. It's not that simple, and you're probably getting sick of my being so pedantic by now, but we have to <laughs> get into these issues, right? Uh, how do you know that the same word was being used because they're both very tall? How do you know it wasn't because they're both hybrids or because they're both uh, tyrannical, essentially? I mean, you can't just be myopic and just simplify things and water them down just so you can build a a very exciting-sounding narrative. Right, yeah. Because it's such a subjective term and and we're... But it's just we just we want to look for the easy answer. That's why, aren't we? We just we're just drawn to look for the quick, easy fix. And frankly, when it comes down to it, I think it is all very easy. It's just that it's it gets so cluttered and muddled uh, because of the kind of narratives that people will they'll spin yarns, right? They'll tell tall tales, and they're very exciting to listen to. I love listening to these guys. Because uh, it's exciting. I call it theo sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, but my, my problem is if, if you're claiming to do theology, you can't do that. You could not go. Now, incidentally, think about, you might not be aware, but think about how many of these uh, pop researchers, and I'm talking Steve Quayle, L.A. Marzulli, Rob Skiba, Brian Gadawa, um, Derek Gilbert, you name it. How many of those guys have written fictional books about Nephilim and giants in addition to the books that they claim are based on real research? All of them. Mm. All of them have. And I must say, I think that it's such an easy transition for them because what they're putting forth in their books that are supposed to be real research essentially is sci-fi already. Um, because of all these problems, because they're not stopping to iron all these things out. And so it's very easy for them to transition into just um, actual novels and sci-fi. It seems like they've already decided what the conclusion's going to be, and then they're, maybe maybe I'm being harsh, but cherry-picking what they want and putting the the spin on the text that is required to fulfill the preconceived conclusions. We don't think it's a case by case basis. Yeah. Sorry to generalize. My my issue is that for me, this is not a personal thing. It's not an emotional thing. I'm just saying, I'm looking at your research, uh, you guys, and I'm just offering my opinions on it. Yeah. I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. I just know that there's a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And there's, there's some fundamental level problems. So let me put it this way. For example, 
Um, a lot of those guys like Gary Wayne are very good researchers and there's no question about it. So they offer data points, right? And those data points are actual data points and they're solid. The problem is how they connect those data points. And that's where it becomes more like a philosophical thing. Yeah. It becomes like a, a opinion. And, and then that's when they start watering things down so that the data points seem to line up when they really don't. Well, I, I read, when I read Genesis 6, that's the first book I've read in this sort of area that you're talking about. And he's very... To, you know, to be fair, he's very open in the way he opens the book. He says, I'm a biblical literalist. I believe it pretty much word for word, the Old Testament, and here I'm going to explain why. So you're reading it, you're armed with that knowledge going into it that there's a certain philosophy or belief system that's involved with the book. And, you know, providing you, you know, I'm, I feel comfortable, I can read that with an open mind and take the bits out of it that I want and maybe disregard other bits. And I can frankly, still respect uh, the amount of work that's gone in and research. That's I mean, I certainly, even though I probably maybe don't, I'm not with him on it all, I certainly learned a lot about the Old Testament in the process, which I didn't know before. But So the issue becomes, did you really learn about the Old Testament? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, I, I hate to sound that way, but did you really learn something about the old testament or did you read the watered down version of how he's able to spin a narrative honestly because uh, um again i okay who engages in what i call keyword based theology search for a keyword text where that word occurs and then you just connect all those texts together. And, and he comes up with some fascinating narratives, but when you stop and you consider, well, wait a minute, this text is very different in context than this one and this one and this one, and, and you're just running down to this list and mashing them together, but it's, it doesn't actually work. Mm. It doesn't actually work. So... If I may, do you want to just go get back on track with the, uh, the the issue of the flood and the giants? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, okay, post flood giants. Now, the issue is Rephaim. Rephaim are a people group who were living in the land of Canaan, and so the Israelites had to confront them at some point. Uh, Rephaim. Oh, it's, it's uh... so many meanings. It can range from healing to death, incidentally. <laughs> I mean, imagine a, a word, uh, well, the root word, refa. It can range from healing to death. Can you imagine you ask somebody, oh, I heard so-and-so was sick. How are they doing? Uh, refa. <laughs> <laughs> are you saying they got healed or they died? I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> So but, rather, um, um, rather ambiguous term. <laughs> I mean, this is why context is king, though. Right. This is why uh, ultimately the context will define what a word means, not the etymology. But so refa is a main category under which there are subcategories such as anakim or zamzumim, right? Just like we might say uh, nation, state, city, 
or um, fa- or uh, tribe, clan, family, right? That that's what it's like. So, um, the the most unusual thing you could ever get directly from the Bible about Raphaim is that some of them are tall. Okay, that's subjective. And some of them are of great stature or very tall. Okay, well, that's subjective. And incidentally, it's subjective to Hebrew males of those days who average five to five three in feet. And I know um, you might have to convert it. Uh, <laughs> no, we're on feet. Your... We're on feet and inches in the UK still. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, really? Wow. Yeah. Brexit uh, and all that. The meeting of the, uh, <laughs> so that's how little I know. But, uh, okay, so five feet even or five three, that was the average Hebrew male of those days. So there you have it. A tall could be six feet. A very tall could be six and a half or seven. I mean, you don't have to go very far to when you're talking tall or very tall. Um, but that's it. You wouldn't get anything really beyond that idea. Uh, Rephaim or their subgroups, they're just good old-fashioned human beings. There's no indication that they're anything uh, besides that except the root word Rapha, okay? The root word, the word Rapha is, uh, like I said, sometimes refers to the dead. So there are texts which speak of the spirits of the dead, and they're referred to as Rapha. Uh, so, for instance, you'll hear the, um, some of these people talk about the um, the mighty dead ones, because You'll, you'll run across the Hebrew Repha Gibor or Gibor Repha. But it's all it's saying is that these were once mighty people and now they're dead. <laughs> really, there, there's nothing beyond that unless you want to make it sound more about it. So just because the root word Repha means dead and it can refer to the dead doesn't necessarily mean that the Rephaim is a people group composed of, I don't know what... Zombies. Spirit beings or anything like that. That There's just no indication of that whatsoever. That there's just not. Now, the issue becomes, um, if you might recall, you said, okay, so if we were reading here in Genesis 6, recall it said that Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also after that, right? Okay, let's just pause there for a minute. So now we're going to go to the post-flood reference to Nephilim. And this is where Moses sends 12 spies into the land before they enter it. And they go around, they're there for 40 days scouting out the land, and they come back and they present a report of what they saw, right? And then, hopefully, you're not actually reading the narrative of chapter 13. Hopefully, you'll just read one or two verses and then pick them up and run with it, because <laughs> then you can get away with something. Right. So, uh, the spies said, there we saw the Nephilim the sons of Anak, the Anakim, which come of the Nephilim. And we were in our own sights as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. 
See, so they're claiming they saw the Nephilim at a during a post-flood time, and they claim that Nephilim that Anakim are related to Nephilim, and they claim Nephilim are very very tall. So hopefully you'll just pick that up. You'll leave this chapter behind, and then you'll start weaving fancy tall tales, because that's more exciting than what I'm about to tell you. (laughs) So, for one, let's just get, get our head fixed on something. There are three times the word Nephilim appears in the Bible. Genesis 6, 4, and then Numbers 13, 33, where it appears twice. That's it, period. Any other time you see the word, the English word giant, it's Raphaim or Rapha. Right. So that's important. Now, the important thing here is the narrative, which is that all 12 of them return to the camp and they report to the uh, Israelites what they saw during their their 40 days of scouting out the land. Okay, now here it is. They said, we came to the land. You know what? I'm reading um, the KJV. I'm going to change it or else I'm going to read, uh, we came to the land whither thou sentest us. <laughs> and, you know. Good old King I James. <laughs> I've read it. I've read the KJV. I don't necessarily mind it, but I don't, there's I only want to get tongue-tied a certain amount of times before I look like a schmuck. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it too late? (laughs) Too many dots. Uh, You're good. You're good. Yeah, we've not got there yet. (laughs) So what do you, what do you, what do you going, what are you going on? Like new international or something? I'm going to read the uh, ESV now, English standard version. Right. Okay. (laughs) So... They came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They told him, we came from the land which you sent us, uh, to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and here's the fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hell country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Okay? Mm-hmm. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go against the people for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel, a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying the land through which we've gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great great height. We saw there the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Okay, so if nothing else, um, on the surface level, we see that it's it, there's some kind of back and forth going on here because there's a report that's presented that's accepted as is. No problem. But then 
Caleb quieted the people. So obviously there was something about the, the report that was making people nervous. <laughs> and and then... The fucking giants! <laughs> well, no. See, they, they hadn't said that yet. <laughs> okay, this, that's, that's what's important. That's what's important. Um, okay, so contextually, historically, you're talking about wilderness dwellers, tent dwellers, yep. itinerant people, Israelites, right? All of a sudden, they're seeing city after city that's huge, <coughs> protected with walls, fortified, well fortified, yeah. with people who are, um, um, you know, experienced and strong, and they are intimidated. You go from living in a tent dwelling to a city, to a city that's got walls around it and is being protected. That's intimidating at the very mm. least. That's all you get from this story so far. Right. Um, so then they say, we're not going to be able to go against the people. They're stronger than we. And then the narrative tells us they brought up a bad report of the land, usually translated as evil report. Now they say, and let me back up because I want to draw this distinction. This is absolutely key. <clears throat> if you notice in the report that's accepted as is, they talk about how the people of the land are strong. That's what they say twice. Mm. They're all strong. But when, when their back's against the wall, uh, when they want to emphasize their rejection of God's command to take the land, right? When they want to argue against Caleb, all of a sudden they embellish the report and they claim that all the people are of great height. Oh. See, that's something they had not said before. All right. of a sudden, to emphasize their point, now they say that within their bad report. So that's an embellishment right there. It's like they're okay. trying to talk themselves out of it. I'm sorry? It's like they're trying to talk themselves out of it. They are, absolutely. Because Caleb was saying, let's go, let's get her done, as they say. And, and they're saying, no, we're not going to be able to. So then they bring up a report that is not accepted as is, as the first one was. And that's the problem. So then notice, by the way, um, in the first report, they said... Uh, the land flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. A good report of the land. But then in the bad report, the land through which we go is a land that devours its inhabitants. So that's a straight-up contradiction. They just contradicted themselves. Moreover, if you noticed in the as-is report, they talk about all the people groups they saw. Anakim, Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites. Yeah. How come they forgot to mention the most notable beings they saw? <laughs> All of a sudden, in the evil, in the bad report, oh, by the way, I can't believe we forgot this. We also saw Nephilim. <laughs> and notice, they're able to pinpoint where each people group lived. The Amalekites were in the Negev, Hittites, yeah. Jebusites, and Amorites in the hill country, Canaanites by the sea and, the, and along the Jordan. But then they say they saw the Nephilim. They're unable to pinpoint where they were. So that's a missing data point right there. They can't be specific 
because my argument is they saw no such thing. They, they, they just up. made it up. They got um, they got cold feet. They saw the walls absolutely. of these fortified cities and got cold absolutely. feet and tried to talk the people out of it. And also, uh, this is on a, the level of just common sense. If you saw beings that were so gigantic, they made you feel like a grasshopper. <laughs> Wouldn't you run back into camp and go, OMG, you won't believe what we saw. <laughs> or, you know, the ancient uh, version of OMG, like OMUD. <laughs> um, no, when they get back to camp, the first thing they talk about, hey, look at this fruit. Yeah, check out this fruit we found. Yeah. Oh, the lamb, that's great lamb. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't make sense the way that they're doing things. So the whole thing stinks, in other words. <laughs> the whole thing, um, the way the narrative is laid out, they present a report, it's accepted as is, uh, but Caleb can see that they're, the people are frightened, and so he says, never mind about this, let's go. And then these guys start building a case why they shouldn't, and it is within that case that's called an evil report for which they were rebuked, yeah. that they contradict themselves, they embellish the report, <laughs> and they claim they have seen Nephilim. And so here's the problem also. They make three claims about which the entire rest of the Bible knows nothing, nothing that there's post-flood Nephilim, that Anakim are related to them, and that Nephilim are very, very tall. That it exists nowhere else in the whole entire Bible. <laughs> nowhere. So it's this is just saturated with problems. Absolutely saturated. Moreover, there, there's more problems. Yeah. In Deuteronomy 128, Moses is relating, he's recalling this event, and when he talks about what happened, he doesn't even mention the Nephilim. He's saying these spies scared our people. They claimed all the people of the land were of great stature. That's it. He doesn't say a word about Nephilim. And textually, there's another problem. If you look at the Septuagint for this verse, it, it does refer to the Gigantes, the Nephilim, but there's no mention of Anakim in there. So now you can't even have Anakim related to them through that version. So the whole thing stinks from beginning to end, up and down, linguistically, contextually, in every way you can possibly think of it. The The bottom line is they made a, a they made a, a don't go in the woods type of uh, <laughs> tall tale. It was a fear mongering scare tactic. That's it. It's, it's, it's a gigantic problem. Yet, um, the overwhelming majority of anybody who's out there talking about this, um, even the absolutely qualified um, Dr. Uh, Michael Heiser, they pick up this verse, just the verse, and they run, they run with it. Because from this verse, they can get post-flood Nephilim, they can get um, Anakin related to them. So then, by the way, they'll go on to claim that Rephaim are related to Nephilim, which mm. you can't even get if you even believe this. You just get that a subgroup is related to them. Well, that's okay. And then you get that Nephilim are quote-unquote giants. You only get that from this one single verse. That's it. And, and so think about that. In, in Genesis 6, there was no physical description of Nephilim. None. You get that from this one single verse. So that leads me to conclude there is no reliable physical description of Nephilim. So you, we can't even really claim that they were unusually tall. We can't. 
In fact, I think it would be delicious if it turns out Nephilim were little people, but that's just <laughs> for fun, you know. Because wow. we have no reliable physical description. No. So, uh, essentially, the whole entire uh, popular level and sometimes even scholarly teaching about Nephilim, that they live post-flood and their size, all of that is based on one single verse, which then becomes a hermeneutic, like a worldview, and then other verses are pulled into it to build this grand narrative that incidentally goes all the way out to the eschatology, the uh, end days or last times, right? And so they'll formulate these fantastical uh, views of the future based on this stuff. It doesn't exist. Mm. Let me just give you, I know I'm, I'm pretty much lecturing at this point, and I'm sorry it's for fine. that. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I So just as an example of how this verse becomes a, a worldview. And incidentally, Steve Quayle said that Nephilim are the Rosetta Stone for understanding the Bible. And he's also been quoted by Rob Skiba as having said that it's the Rosetta Stone for understanding history. And this is why Gary Wayne ends up with a book like he, like he wrote, because he's viewing all of history for this. And to me, it's, it's shocking, it's shocking that anybody could have even imagined saying such a thing, much less have turned it into their worldview, such as that Nephilim or the key to the Bible or, or history. Now, so what I was saying is this verse becomes a worldview, a hermeneutic, and a means whereby to interpret. Let me give you a perfect example of that. Uh, again, I asked us to pause at Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim were in the earth in those days and also after that. Okay, mm-hmm. so what is that telling us? Or what have you heard? Let's just put it that way. What have you guys heard about what that's telling us? That's the end of them. It's supposed to be, isn't it? But hold on. But it says they were there in those days. In those days. And also after that. Right. Okay. So up to the flood? Is that what we're saying? Isn't that the idea? That's, that's what... Um, anybody who you'll just happen to encounter who's written books about this, that's what they'll tell you. This is what it's telling you. Nephilim were in the earth in those days before the flood. Yeah. And also after that, after the flood, right? Right, yeah. But, One of those eight people were knocked up by an angel. That's where I'm getting from it. Hey, you know what? Life. Yeah, that that is... One of the theories is something... Um, Similar to that, but let, let's get <laughs> to that. Wildly inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, we can get to those in just a minute. But did you notice that when I read Genesis 6, 1 through 4, I mean, we read it through, and what is it about that that would make you think it's talking about the flood? The flood wasn't mentioned in Genesis 1 through 4. It's just like in a... Fact, so it's just it's just like the flood. A, I'm sorry. Go ahead, go on. Go on. It's just it's something that you automatically jump to because when you think of Genesis, you think of Adam and Eve and the the fall of Eve, and then you think of Noah and the flood. So it's just it's it's in there in your subconscious somewhere that you connect these dots. Right. But the point is, let's pretend I'm going to read Genesis one, 
the whole chapter two, three, four, we're going to do that line by line. We're going to read it as if it was for the first time. We haven't gotten to the flood yet in Genesis 6, 4. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet. So we shouldn't even know about that yet. Okay. So we can't artificially insert that into what we're doing yet. No. In fact, okay, Genesis 6, 4, the flood isn't mentioned for the very first time until verse 17 of Genesis 6. That's a full 13 verses later. So you can't read past and then uh, loop back and artificially insert it and miss, by the way, that the text tells you exactly what it means by those days and after that. So they were in the earth in those days. What days? Well, the verse tells you right here when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and bare children to them. That's when. Uh, well, and when was that? Uh, well, verse 1 told you, it came to pass when man begun to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and so on. Right. So that's told to us. Now, when was that? I have no idea. Uh, maybe when, it could be as early as when Adam and Eve's children were having children. But regardless, those are those days. The verse told you, and then verse 1 told you. So when when was after that? After that was after that. <laughs> I mean, it's when they first started doing it, and after they first started doing it, and yet all pre-flood. Yep. Now, I don't want to get into the issue of, of how long it was. I know people try to figure that stu- that stuff out, and God bless them. It's just that's not I, – I can't wrap my mind around trying to figure that out. But it could have been, let's say, a um, hundred um, – I don't know. If, if you're trying to say that when men begin to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, maybe that's when Adam and Eve children started having children. It could have been a thousand and a half years earlier. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Because it was those days when they first did it, and after they first did it, they were still doing it. But then the flood brought a full stop to that period. Yep. And the only reason to think that those days and after that <laughs> means past the flood is because you've read ahead to <laughs> number thirteen thirty-three, and then you want to use that to interpret Genesis six four. But you don't need to do that. We just saw oh, that yeah, the text yeah. is telling you what it means. <laughs> yep. yeah. See, that's that's such a. I'm telling you, the whole scheme is based on that one verse. Wow. The whole scheme, post flood Nephilim, rereading Genesis six four, the um, that that Rephaim tribes were related to Nephilim. That Nephilim were very very tall. All of that, all of it is based on one single verse, and it just happens to be an extremely problematic verse no matter how you look at it it's for a writing prompt it's, uh, it's going to be just a seed yeah it just absolutely crushed my dreams about James thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> well okay now hold on a minute because oh. uh, I don't want to be misunderstood. Let's imagine that somehow, somewhere on Earth, there existed people who were take twelve feet tall, whatever you want. My opinion is good for them. <laughs> I hope they enjoy being that tall. What do I care? I, I don't have an issue with that. My issue is to 
let's say if we're discussing the Bible, we're in this little box of the Bible, we're talking about that. What does it tell to us? And it doesn't tell us about any of uh, the things that are woven into very exciting sci-fi tall tales. So, as I mentioned earlier, what the Bible tells us is actually extremely simple and basic. Before the flood, there lived these uh, angel-human hybrids called Nephilim. The last of them died in the flood. They never turned. They didn't survive. They never will return. And they're done with, period. Uh, Post-flood, you had a Canaanite people called Rephaim. Israelites battled against them quite a bit. Uh, end of story. I mean, bottom line. Um, so now, um, to the issue of height, the Bible actually only gives us two specific heights of anybody and everybody, two heights. Uh, then it makes what I like to think of as metaphorical statements. Um, but that's about it. Then it, it, it offers uh, subjective terms such as tall or very tall or great stature, which, again, is just based on comparison. Yeah. Now, the specific heights are of an unnamed uh, Egyptian man who was uh, seven feet five inches. And the other one's Goliath. Mm. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that Goliath was a Nephil and that he had six fingers and six toes. It's just, no, that doesn't exist. For one, he was a Rapha. Um, being a um, Philistine means he was a subgroup of Anakim or a subgroup of Raphaim. And that's why later in the text, he's referred to as the Rapha from Gath, right? From Gath. Yeah. That's where he lived. So the issue with Goliath is there's a discrepancy in manuscripts. So the Greek manuscripts have him as being J of 10 feet. And the Hebrew ones, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, and even the writings of Flavius Josephus, they have him being as just shy of 7 feet. Uh, and frankly, I think it was just a minor... Uh, it, uh, a minor issue in translation because the the Greek version was translated in Alexandria, Egypt, and the the common Egyptian cubit was longer than the common Hebrew cubit. Right. So I think instead of doing the actual mathematical conversion between the two, I think the Greeks just said, hey, cubit, cubit. Okay, we'll use our cubit. So uh, Goliath <laughs> seems taller when he really wasn't. It's just that I, I think it's actually that simple. Besides which, I mean, look, his height wasn't the big deal. The big deal was that he was a champion, yeah. as the text refers to him. He was an experienced, successful warrior. That that was the problem. Well, it was a one-on-one duel, wasn't it? And the Philistines put yeah. up their champion to fight David. Yeah. And incidentally, um, it was... Interesting, I recently attended a talk by Frank Turek, and a little girl asked him afterwards, why is it that David picked up five river stones, but he only used one against Goliath? 
And Turek rightly said, uh, even if generically, well, I mean, there were other soldiers around, so just in case. And afterwards, I told Turek, you know what the Bible tells us? It tells us Goliath had four sons, right? So there you go. Just in case the boys want to get involved when daddy went down. He had the four ready to go. Fuck. Biggest Frank, Frank, do you say Frank Turek? Turek, yeah. Is he the guy who debated Christopher Hitchens famously? Yes. I watched that debate. It was fascinating. Yes. Oh, you've met him. Well, just just briefly, I had him sign my uh, book. Yeah. Um, I had his book, uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, That's and then funny. I handed him one of my books that I wrote on atheism. Oh, cool. So we, we made that exchange, yeah. Cool. So another thing you often hear is, well, but um, look at people like Goliath. They had spears as thick as a weaver's beam, and they had oh, their helmets and their armor yeah. was just so heavy. They had to be, quote-unquote, giants. Well, um, okay, but you could go to any strongman competition nowadays or a, or a powerlifting or weightlifting competition, and you could see guys that are right around six feet lifting a 1,000 pounds. You don't necessarily have to be tall to be that strong. And, and um, we, have, we, have a, we have a preponderance to exaggerate as well, don't we? To be frank. Honestly, I think that is something that has to be taken into consideration. So, for example, if I'm an explorer and you're a sovereign and you fund my exploration and I go off across the sea to a strange and foreign land and then I return, <laughs> you know, am I going to tell you, well, I guess we saw a different kind of monkey. I mean, <laughs> you know, oh, it's the land of milk you. and honey. Sovereign, uh, thank you for all your money and everything. But how about the, we saw giants, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, why not? Uh, and if you want to claim that you were successful in battle, you might as well claim you beat giants or if you lose in a battle, you might as well claim you lost to giants. You know, you, yeah. you're going to, I think that I'm not using that as an argument from silence to discredit anything, but it is something about human nature that we really should take into consideration. Um, in fact, that reminds me of a problem with um, supposed, not, not supposed, of actual claims to have the bones or skeletons of Nephilim. Even Josephus himself says, hey, if you want to see the bones of these uh, Nephilim, you can go see them. We, we've, we have them. Um, but I'm not convinced Josephus was an anatomist. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's something to be said for that. If you were to spread a bunch of bones around and you ask me, okay, which one's human? Which one's pachyderm? Mm. Uh, which one's bovine? Which one's a whale? Which one's a dinosaur? Uh, that I mean, I couldn't. I could try a, a guess, but um, that is a real problem. And there's been actual um, research done on this kind of stuff that turns out that the bones that are often claimed to be of gigantic humans turn out to be just that. They're pachyderm, like mastodons or mammoths. They're whales. Or dinosaurs. And in an interesting point made by um, one of the researchers who wrote a book about this, 
she says, let's say that you found the bones of a mammoth. And, well, you wouldn't know what you're really looking at. But commonsensically, you would lay it down on the ground. And you would lay it down in the form of a man stand, a human being standing up, right? <laughs> in other words, it's, it's two-dimensional. You're laying them flat. You're not actually constructing, building up the skeletons like we do in our museums. So if you were to do that, it looks like a giant human. And to boot, you would have a skull with a giant hole in the center. <laughs> and if you don't know that's for the trunk, you would naturally interpret that as an eye socket. And there you have a story of a cyclops. Yeah. Yeah, you it know, makes sense. Commonsensical stuff, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Now. So those are the two specific heights. And incidentally, my point about the average Hebrew male those days being five feet or five three is important. When you notice that the first time the Bible talks about uh, King Saul, it specifies that he was outstanding because he was a head and shoulder above the average person. So again, he was like, maybe let's just go with six five. And that was like, wow, man, look at this guy. It's it's noteworthy. Yeah. And to us, it's like, it's, he's not that tall. Come on. It's not a big deal. Um, then you have metaphors such as Amos telling us that the Amorites were as strong as oaks. Okay, now... Does that statement impress any of you as if the implication is that we now have to conduct some kind of mathematical ratio-based um, calculation between the strength of an oak and the strength of a person? No, it's or, totally totally metaphorical statement, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's how I would take it, right? Yeah. But, but Amos also said that their height is as the height of the cedars. <laughs> and I can't even tell you how many of these pop researchers say, oh, let's look up. The, okay, uh, yeah, the cedars in that region of the world are a 40 to 60 feet, 60 feet tall. So Amos was telling us that the Ammonites were 40 to 60 feet tall. Wow. You know, it just, on a commonsensical level, he's telling us these guys are big and strong. You know, yeah. I'm not convinced you have to go beyond that, especially when you do it for their height, but you don't bother doing it with their strength. Anyhow, um, and then you have the issue of Og, Og of Bashan, yeah. right, who you'll read in a thousand sources was 12 to 13 feet tall. And you know how we know that? Because we're told the size of his bed. Okay, to, to begin with, we are not told his height. We're told the size of an object that he owned. Let's just get that out straight. Yeah. Okay. Um, and to just boil all this down, okay, if you were to measure my bed, yeah, you could subtract a foot from it, and you would get a reasonable idea of my height. Uh, you would also think I'm five times wider than I actually am, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> and um, the bottom line of that one is we don't know his personal height and um, as for his bed well you really shouldn't compare it to mine because I'm not an ancient king I'm not a pagan king sharing his bed with 
Who knows? Um, yeah. uh, we don't need to get into the details, but you know, you know, uh, harems and all of that. Mm. But we don't even have to go there because the thing is, we have found um, archaeologically have found. Uh, what are known as ritual beds that match the dimensions of that bed of King Og. And they were not meant to be slept on. They were almost like altars. They were ritual beds upon which the gods supposedly came down and mated. They they were ritual objects. Nobody actually slept on them. Oh, wow. So there's that. Yeah. And um, trying to think if there's anything else because – between the specific heights and the metaphors, that is, that's just about it. I mean, listening to these guys, you'd think that the Bible makes this big to do about all this stuff, and it just doesn't. It just doesn't. Well, Ken, I mean, you've given us mm. a real reality check tonight. Yeah, I and really enjoyed that. It shows the importance of, um, well, two things, I would say. Reading things in the correct context... And going back to the original sources and reading them, because yeah. it's so tempting to get sucked down this train and uh, and and believe it's probably the wrong word, but to sort of almost fantasize about this thing. I, I just so find me, it. Sorry, go on. If I may, one thing I wanted to make clear, like what you stated about Gary Wayne, what he states at the very beginning of the book, put that put me in that category as well. Yeah. I, I'm a Jew who eventually came to accept Jesus as my Messiah. So I'm a straight up Bible believer. Yeah. That's, that's, that is out there. That is me. Um, and maybe that's all the more reason why I don't just take what these guys say at face value. Because incidentally, I was doing that. I mean, I've never attended a sermon where a pastor focused on this stuff. And when I read through the Bible, I would just read past it. It's not something that caught my attention. So when I started listening to these guys and watching their videos, man, are they ever exciting to listen to. And they, and they make so much sense. And the way they're able to pull all this stuff together from mythology and archaeology, it's so exciting. And it makes so much sense. And then, as is, as is common to me, it took one thing. I saw one single YouTube comment with somebody saying, yeah, I used to go along with these these guys teach, but I looked at it into my. I looked into it myself, and it didn't pan out. And I thought, "Well, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, I have to look into this now." And here I am, years later, um, just saying, "You know, I'm afraid that um, bottom line uh, on a factual point when we when we actually slow down as we've been doing tonight." And we, we think about these things and we break them down and we look at them in detail. It just doesn't pan out. It doesn't. Now, again, this doesn't mean no one has ever existed who was taller than eight or nine or ten feet. It doesn't mean that all of these stories about, quote unquote, giants from all over the world are just make believe. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means when we look at what the Bible says specifically, this is what it says, and this is what it doesn't say, and it's demonstrably so. Mm. That's that's all I'm saying. Well, I think it's great. I've uh, I've enjoyed listening to your mini lecture. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely I definitely learnt a lot, and mm-hmm. you know, it's again, it's this lesson that we've got to sort of take take a step back 
and uh, try and not get sucked into the things and try and... I like to think that I've got a really open mind, but the danger is, if you if you have a really open mind, is you can get sucked into wormholes um, mm. and, and you've got to sort of stop yourself and try and take a step back and and uh, do due diligence is the, is the key, I think, isn't it? Yes. But um, it's been great. Yeah. Thanks for coming, Ken. I, I think it's been fascinating. We'd love to have you Thank back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been um, really interesting, and I appreciate how receptive you you and your team have been, not just of what I'm saying, but just of the fact that we do need to to slow down and iron these, these things out because uh, henceforth, I guarantee you, now when you find a video on YouTube, right from the beginning, you'll say, well, wait a minute, how could you in one sentence go from the specific Hebrew word Nephilim to the vague uh, one giant? And then I know you're talking about Rephaim, but you're not telling us that. Now you're going to start seeing, well, you're being so unspecific about this stuff. Yeah. At least that's, that's what happens to me nowadays. It's like, well, wait a minute. No, no, no. Slow down. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. And it, never it's so it it fascinates fascinates me so much how we're as a culture we're so obsessed with this one little tribe in the land of canaan and their story and our whole civilization is built on the on the story of this one little tribe and it just uh it really interests me and why i've been trying to learn bits about the history and it's great to speak to someone who's who's read so much about this and has got so much knowledge about it it's been brilliant well, I'll tell you one thing I've, I've noticed is, I mean, I've had various interests throughout the years. So I've looked into the New Age quite a bit. I've looked into occultism quite a bit. I've looked into atheism quite a bit. I've looked into uh, aliens and UFOs quite a bit. My own culture quite a bit. And something all of them, all of them, are 99% anti-biblical or say anti-Christian or anti-Jewish and Christian and 1% anti anything else, then there's got to be something to that cannot be a coincidence that people as new agers, occultists, ufologists, and atheists, and just our pop culture, um, how come all of them can agree that the Bible is the only one up for public ridicule and attack <laughs> and virtually nothing else. I'm just saying that cannot be a coincidence. Yeah. And another thing I noticed is uh, your, uh, <laughs> your shirt, not the shirt, the, uh, the yellow Los Pollos uh, Hermanos uh, thing from what we started uh, the show with, uh-huh. which is uh, Breaking Bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, right. Well, we'll say thanks, Ken. We'll we'll leave, we'll we'll call it a day at this one, at this time, and um, stay on the line for us while we play ourselves out. Very well. Thank right. you for having me. It's been Thank, a pleasure. Thanks for coming. Don't forget to check You're the uh, the link in the description. Truthfreethinker dot com. <laughs> Got it. I did it. <laughs> Back in a flash. Sorry, yeah. Hang on. <laughs> right then, we're back. The dwarf, oh. the cripple, and the mother of madness. That was our chat. Our chat with the legend that is Ken Ami. Ken Ami, Ken Ami, Ken Ami.
Think? Nice. That's, that's flip flip themed as well. That's, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't have picked a more perfect song. Um, I thought it was how, a very. How come Ken got, gets his own jingle? I think everyone gets their own jingle from now. He's set a precedent. Yeah, I think Ken was worth it. I thought it was a very thoughtful, yeah. considered, huh? um, thought provoking guest. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, he just missed out on um, the aliens at the end there, though. Next time, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, Ken will come back further down the line, and because we're, we're yeah. lords, we'd lost to go out. Oh, Ben's gone. No, I'm still here. It's just cycling. We did an hour pretty much on Genesis, so I think there was yeah. lots more to go at. So, Ten Bill minutes. Collins next week. Yeah, ten minutes on the death penalty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've got a new T-shirt there, Ben. I have here. It is. Where could you body. where Where could you get that T-shirt from? There is one. There is one of these t-shirts. It's currently touching my skin. Touching cloth. <laughs> what? Uh, this what? is a prototype t-shirt uh, that may or may not become available for purchase. Yeah, so we need some feedback, really, don't we? Yeah, do you like it? Do you hate it? Have I used yeah. the correct current? I know I have. <laughs> you only said uh, what's on your t-shirt. Well, it's, it's some words. The first word is current, and the second word is grape. Current. Current. Grape. Oh, current. censored version. Yeah. It's uh, high street friendly. <laughs> Housekeeping. Oh. Housekeeping. 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 What's going on a bit this week? Oh, we just housekeeping. Housekeeping. I couldn't find my notes then. Yeah, what do we need for the housekeeping? We need iTunes reviews. We need you to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Send us news articles, clips, videos, artwork, etc. Uh, send us yeah. memes for yeah, Instagram. Memes. You know, I, I reposted a meme that one of our producers sent uh, t'other day. So that's good. Anything that provides content for us and frees up more time for us to concentrate on this that we do every week. So, yeah, that's good. How else can you become, become a producer? You buy a T-shirt. Mm. <laughs> Eventually. Toss us if a you... fucking coin. <laughs> Toss a coin to your witcher, oh valley of plenty, oh valley of plenty. I think you're hitting, hitting the coin, Shell. Toss a coin to the witcher, oh valley of plenty. Uh, <clears throat> it really bothers me. Uh... Uh, <laughs> because I, I believe I'm, I have an issue in this respect. Uh, yeah, tosses a motherfucking coin in the style of Andrew Shatkin. Or you could send us uh, tiny burps in the style of Andrew Shatkin. Yep, 
Go to mm. the the, uh, the and look up the how to become a producer tab. Yeah. Or click on the PayPal button and uh, send us a toss us a coin. You know. Yeah. Got a birthday this week, Dave Gornall. It's his birthday. Big, big day. Who fires? <laughs> Dave Grohl. Dave Cornwall. Dave Gornall. Happy birthday. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm holiday this week, so I've I've got on the wine a bit early. Um, oh no! Oh yeah, it's holiday, isn't it? Ah, so happy how birthday! Did, how did you hold it together during the interview? I'm just a pro, aren't I? <laughs> Stitute. Um, I have another um, announcement, uh, an anniversary to celebrate tomorrow. Tomorrow, my years, my anniversary tomorrow. Of, of, on oh. your own. With my good lady wife. All right. Does she know? How many years? She normally forgets. 18. (laughs) 18. 18 years, and you know, we've never had a fight. (laughs) The fist fight. (laughs) (laughs) So, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Does does your missus know that you've not had a fight? She slapped me once. I remember her slapping me in raw parole once. Oh yes, I remember that. That was that was dark. It was violent, weren't it? Yeah, you were. I think you. I think you probably deserved it, though. Was that the same night pool balls were being thrown around? Who knows? Uh, your Maybe mouth. A producer could submit. Your mouth can yes, talk you. Answers. Can talk you into a world of problems, especially when you're a young man and you're a bit of an idiot and alcohol's involved. <laughs> I learned my lesson. I don't want to be, you know, a victim of domestic abuse again. So just keep quiet now. <laughs> Problem solved with violence. Right, we better uh, thank the producers for this week. We've got Amy the Artist, Diogenes of Sign Up, Tamborista 2020, The 100th Monkey, Night Ninja, Gav Scott, Raymond Jet Squad, and Nick Hall. They're just so amazing, aren't they? They are. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so. Thanks a lot. I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil. They are. Yeah. So amazing. And there. Love. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I'm a Marxist. Because I'm literally a communist. The dwarf, the carrots, the grape, the cunt, the communist, the homophobe, the misogynist, the cripple, and the mother of Ronnie Pickering from hell. It really bothers me. Uh, uh, because I, I'm very. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for another week. It's been uh, it's been a good week, producer wise. Loads of stuff sent us, so thanks. Keep it up. Yeah. You know what to do. <clears throat> Go to the website. Emails. I forgot to say you can email us. Emails at the arms inquisition at gmail dot com. Uh, fucking hell! Right, I, I'm just not with it tonight. <laughs> Three sheets. Yeah. <laughs>
COVID-19 news. Put on your fucking muzzle if you go to the shop. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass from hell. Oh! You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day and Timothy and Mobley. More lives this year than any other year for the past hundred years. Two million people have to die. This is such a crock of shit. This is Dr. Batachia. <laughs> it is. It's COVID nineteen news. Oh my god! Sorry to wank on about uh, lockdowns. Uh, you know the common refrain from people concerned about ICUs being flooded and the health service collapsing and and all the rest of it. I just thought I'd um, pull this clip from. Uh, you know, I mentioned Ivor Cummings. Mm-hmm. He was on Trigonometry, which is a podcast I listen to quite regularly, and he was uh, he was talking about this issue of uh, ICU overloading and whatnot. So I thought you might find this valuable. Described. So you're saving a couple paper. of years of granny, and in the process you're killing off a father of three, a mother of two, someone in their twenties who kills themselves because of depression, etc., yeah. etc. Cetera, et cetera. You're, you're you're trading people who were. Look, obviously, any death is a tragedy. Someone in their 80s deserves to live as long as they possibly could. But the point is, we are in a situation where there are trade-offs. And what we've chosen to do is we're trading an extra year or two or three for someone who may be very ill already versus someone in the prime of their life. Yeah, and I'd say an extra year or two or three, Professor Levitt has done estimates of this and... um, I'd say that's hugely generous. And again, I bring you back to Ireland as a typical case. We have the data. 95% of them were so moribund or heading towards death already that they didn't give them ICU. 95%. So when you think about that, you're not talking about all the people who died had a few years each. No way. You know, it just don't, it's irrational. That was news to me. In, in, wow. As far as the island figures go, 95% of COVID deaths were too old or moribund to be afforded ICU. That's unbelievable, isn't it? It's crazy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I can understand. I think it's a legitimate concern to be worried about ICUs being overwhelmed. Mm. The, the nature of our system is that it's meant to run at capacity all the time. Yeah. anything below capacity is inefficiency yeah it's meant to be you know planned to, mm. to run at capacity uh, mm. if you've got a concern about it being overwhelmed build more fucking capacity mm-hmm. which we did to an extent didn't we with the nightingales which were mothballed because we didn't need them yeah so uh, anyway sticking with the negative effects sorry to bang on about this the negative effects of lockdown but I think this is important and this is something that I learned this week, another negative effect, which is happening in Australia, which is pretty... Uh, if you're easily upset, maybe just um, take your headphones out for 30 seconds or so. Startling <laughs> <laughs> revelations tonight about the deaths of four babies at the Women's and Children's Hospital in the past month with doctors saying they weren't given a chance because the surgery they needed isn't done in South Australia. Medicos pleading for urgent action with fears more babies could lose their lives if nothing is done. 
At 13 months of age, Charlotte's health rapidly deteriorated. Her only chance of survival was a transfer to Melbourne for the cardiac care she needed. We almost lost her a few times the day that they came, the Melbourne team flew in to retrieve her. The now two-year-old is one of around 100 children sent into state each year for urgent medical care because Adelaide is the only state mainland capital that doesn't do paediatric cardiac surgery. It can be done, it's done in the other states. And really a child's life shouldn't come down to chance. The problem exacerbated during the COVID pandemic because medical transfers to Melbourne can't happen. Instead, patients are being sent to Sydney. But in the last month, four babies have died. Who were unable to be transferred, who almost certainly would have benefited from on-site cardiac surgery and an ECMO support system. The significant mental distress that this not only has caused the doctors but the clinicians generally in that unit is indescribable. The chiefs of the women's and children's wouldn't comment on the deaths but admit a paediatric cardiac unit would help. Certainly some... (sighs) So the state of play is Adelaide doesn't have the function to do heart surgery on babies. That's like, that in itself is unbelievable. So, yeah, I mean, even before you get to the whole sort of COVID and... Yeah, so the standard procedure is to fly them thousands (laughs) of miles away. Yeah. So, not thousands of miles, wherever it is. You can kind of understand it here, where, you know, we have specialist children's hospitals. You know, there's one in Northwest, one in London or whatever, because we're a tiny country. But like, you know, Australia is huge, isn't it? Hmm. But anyway, go on, so you're going to say something. No, that's the situation. It, the problem is it's been exacerbated. He said it's been exacerbated. So yeah. Adelaide is on the south coast. <clears throat> and the they would normally, these babies who need this surgery would be transferred to the state next door, which is Victoria, mm-hmm. where Emperor Dan is running the show. Uh, Victoria's where they smash your car windows in if, you, <laughs> yeah, if you're yeah, trying to yeah. leave the state. That fucker. Yeah. Right, so they can't go to Melbourne, so they're having to go to Sydney, which yeah. is in New South Wales. It's like an extra seven, 800 kilometres. Yeah. And obviously the capacity is reduced because mm-hmm. there, will, there will only be so many hospitals that can do the surgery. And there are question marks that babies are dying because they can't go to Melbourne and they're having to go to Sydney. Yeah. Unforeseen circumstances. Yes. Consequences. But this is the thing now that surely I just there's so I think the the, there's so much um counter argument now to what how it's all been handled. I just don't get why There's not. Only from us here on the fucking (laughs) Irish Inquisition. Hello, but this is what watch, I, watch the BBC ITV question time. They're all when for it. When are we going to lock down again and order? That's what I was going to say. Is that you know, there's so much evidence out there of the harm that it's doing, as compared to what it's achieving, and people are still in favour of more. Give us more. I don't get it. Anyway, there was a, a report from the ONS this week. Uh, at least 26,000 more people than usual have died at home during the coronavirus pandemic, potentially because they couldn't or didn't want to go to hospital, according to ONS. Between March the 20th, the week lockdown started, and September 11th, 
A total of 86,000 people died in private homes rather than hospitals. The number, which is a surge of 43.6% on the average for that time of year, includes fatalities of any cause, with COVID-19 only linked to 3.3% of them. Wow. So this extra 43,000 people who are dying at home, 96.7% of them aren't dying at home of COVID. <laughs> but they're scared to go into hospital in case they catch it? Or what? Uh, well, taking up resources, I guess. Oh, it's <laughs> taking up resources, yeah. Oh, it's been cancelled. Or cancelled, yeah. They cleared the decks. Thing. Yeah. Deaths in private homes have remained well above average <laughs> since March. Yeah, in hospitals and care homes, the number of deaths slipped below average in June. Once the first cave of war, uh, first wave of COVID had blown over, it's now risen slightly below. Uh, statisticians said the change represented a redistribution in where people die. Experts are not sure whether statistics are necessarily bad. Many people choose to die at home rather than hospital. <laughs> But warn, people might have missed out on proper end-of-life care, which includes painkillers, and that some mm. people may have actually been saved if they're at a hospital. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, Sorry, up. was that, so that, was that <coughs> an extra 43,000 people have died, not just at home? At home. So... We we're the, expecting that amount of people to die, but they've died at home. It's not excess mortality. There's a, there's, no. a, there's like a a ratio between where people die, either in hospital or at home mm. or in a care home, and the number yeah. of people have, who have died <clears throat> at home has gone up nearly fifty percent, mm. which is yeah troublesome. Anyway, mm. um. Matt, you said uh, last week, I think, or maybe the week before that, you might be reluctant to get the vaccine. Why? You're going to say that it's been lined up for NHS frontline workers next week? I wasn't going there. <laughs> um, I, I just want to quell your 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 worries. Is it I... just going to be super painful? <laughs> 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 Big fat shot in the ass from hell. I... Uh, I signed a petition weeks ago, uh, one of these online peti- petitions, prevent any restrictions on those who refuse to refuse a COVID vaccination. Right. You know how it works with an online petition. If they get so many respondents, the government has to respond. And then if it goes over 100,000, I think they have to debate in Parliament. Yeah. Maybe. So I got the response. This will uh, quell your fears. There are currently no plans to place restrictions on those who refuse to have any potential COVID-19 vaccine. There you go. Currently no plans. You know, that's that's politicians speak, isn't it? For there are plans. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can see it definitely being linked to travel, couldn't you? Mm. Having a COVID passport. Oh, well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad you've brought that up because, uh, again, Ireland are leading the way. Check this shit out. <laughs> Health Passport Ireland is created to protect our society and our economy. Built in Ireland by the Rock U Group, the system uses the very best COVID-19 testing, combined with the latest mobile technologies. Health Passport Ireland is powered by proven and validated systems, allowing us all to take safer steps in our return to our normal way of life. Here's how it works. With Health Passport Ireland, everyone can now be tested for COVID-19 at any time. 
which helps to protect you, your family, our jobs and our economy. Your COVID-19 test will be performed with highly accurate serological or swab tests. Your test is performed by a medical professional. After your COVID-19 test, an authorised healthcare administrator creates your Health Passport Ireland account. Your login details will be emailed to you immediately with a link to download your Health Passport mobile app. The authorised healthcare administrator securely updates your COVID-19 test results in your Health Passport. Once activated, you can easily display your COVID-19 status on your mobile. Your Health Passport can be scanned if you wish, which helps protect those around us. Your COVID-19 status will efficiently display as green, amber or red, dependent on your test results. This allows us to go about our daily activities in a safer way. We can all use Health Passport Ireland in many ways, such as travel. Travel? Hospitality. Going to the pub or a hotel? Education. Kids going to school? You better have had your vaccine if you want your kids to go to public school. Healthcare. Hospital, obviously. Construction. Work? You want to go to work? You better have your COVID vaccine in your in your app on your phone. Offices, entertainment, visits and much, much more. Naturally, the validity of your COVID-19 test will expire over time. Oh, so naturally. an automatic reminder will be sent when it's time to be tested again. Your status will move to amber when your test period has expired. Health Passport Ireland does not use Bluetooth or track your location. This preserves your privacy. <laughs> preserves your privacy? <laughs> <laughs> it's a fucking joke. The systems can work in harmony with existing government contact tracing apps. Oh yeah, tie it into the contact tracers as well, so they know where you are. When a vaccine becomes available, your official vaccination status can also be displayed within your health passport. You can even keep a diary of your international travel and events you have attended. Yeah, keep a diary, just make it even easier for us. Fuck it. Health Passport Ireland can be linked to existing secure medical systems if required. For example, at your GP or hospital. You can visit www.healthpassport. That's a glimpse. Back. It's a glimpse into remember, the future, that. If you, if you can, try and remember pre-Brexit, uh, Britain. <laughs> Do you remember the last kickoff before all that was about um, ID cards? There was a, a big kerfuffle about ID cards. So do you think those the same kind of backlash that we saw against ID cards will, will come up against COVID passport? No, because people have been scared. Fear is the motivator. Yeah, well, they tried it with ID cards, didn't they? By a terrorism, fear yeah. of terrorists and, yeah, yeah. and terrorism didn't really work. David Blunkett tried it. He, he was banging a few times, hadn't they? Recently, he was banging. David Blunkett was banging the drum for ID cards, and it would be biometric. Yeah, but uh, this is the way it's going. I think. Um, how long we? How long are we going to? Are you going to have a health passport for the rest of your life? Yeah, and just be put every. When is it? Isn't it going to, you're going to have like hepatitis B on AIDS, HIV, um, everything. Or is it just That's this COVID? He'll have yeah. everything. No, he'll have everything. Eventually. That's what it? I mean. So then does that not then have consequences for like travel and health insurance, sorry, travel insurance and health insurance and getting a job? Your DNA testing shows that you are susceptible to the following conditions and therefore <laughs> we don't think you're gonna last five years. No. So has anybody ever watched Gattaca? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, what yes, could possibly yeah. go wrong? Yeah. Hackers, maybe? It's a hacker's yeah. dream, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, unfortunately, it gets worse because um, <laughs> I've got a clip from from Emperor Andrews, you know, Emperor no. Dan from Victoria, the guy where they smash your car windows in. <laughs> um, he, he's going one step further. Apologies for the quality of the audio. This was recorded off someone's TV, so you have to listen hard, but it, it's, it's worth it. Uh, that the notion that everyone who returns... He's talking about, initially he's talking about people who come back into the country and the 14-day quarantine. Uh, but, you know, we're not going to have to do that 14-day quarantine forever because, you know, we've, we've got plans. From everywhere goes into 14 days of, uh, of a hotel. That may not be the policy going forward as we look to the entirety of 2021, for instance, not knowing when a vaccine turns, turns up. Uh, that would then mean that you've got options and one of those options might be to say to people, and other countries in the world are doing this, uh, here is an electronic device that means we can be certain about where you are, uh, but there, are, there is some technology that can actually monitor your vital signs as well, uh, so it becomes something that's not just to uh, ensure you stay where you're supposed to stay, it's also a way in which we can monitor whether you're healthy or otherwise. Mm. It's really- yeah, mm. Stay where you're supposed to stay and let's just keep So we're being out. tagged. It's essentially an ankle bracelet that monitors your vitals, just so we know where you're supposed to be, you know, you're staying where you're supposed to be, and that we can check up on you. Okay, now. Yeah. I'm a, you know, I'm a conspiracy theorist, and uh, (laughs) people would laugh at me if I suggested shit like this 12 months ago. Mm. So, the more you listen to David Icke, (laughs) the more you think, oh, actually... He's, he's been right, you know, he's, he's sort of ahead of the game, really. It, well, the queen, the queen is a, li- a lizard. Technocratic system, you know. Oh, God. It's just, it doesn't Even if fuck, clock is right two times a day, isn't it? Yeah. 2021, he's saying. He's saying next year. Get, Great. That, get that stuff going. Surely, oh, is it not supposed to be finished by Christmas or something? Are we not done? Twelve Two weeks it was, wasn't it? E- Easter, wasn't it? <laughs> done by Easter. Fuck's sake! There's been uh, there's been some research about you know excess deaths. Mm. So excess deaths is probably the most reliable metric, sort of judge where we're at because you can't mm-hmm. really fake it. Mm. And um, some work's been done on on the year 2020 to date and. How our excess deaths compare? Would you like to take a stab? Um, if you went for the last twenty-seven years, where the year twenty twenty would land as for as a worst excess ca- death year, ca- excess death year. Um, I'm going to say health has improved for older people, maybe. So I'm going to say it was. If number one is the best... No, number one's the worst. Number one's the worst. I'd say 20 out of 27. <coughs> you think that this year's the the 20th... the 8th best year of the last 27 years for excess death? Yeah. What, why are we, doing, why are we um, locking ourselves in our house, houses then? Um... 
because <laughs> nobody looks at the numbers properly, do they? It's, we, we're having to do this because everyone else is doing it. Uh, it's it's the eighth worst year. Of the is last it? 27 um, 19, is it? It's the eighth worst year for excess deaths of the last quarter of a century. Eighth. Mm. Yeah, so, well, nothing out of the ordinary. What's the worst year? Hmm? What was the worst year? Don't have don't have that information. Uh, Seventeen was a bad year. Seventeen eighteen flu season. We got hit really hard. Right. Interestingly, we had a very mild. We've had two very mild winter seasons. Eighteen nineteen and nineteen twenty. And so have Sweden. You know, people, uh, when you say, well, look at Sweden, how well they're doing, and they always say, oh, well, look at the Nordics. They've got a far worse case for um, death per million number than the other Nordics. But when you look at the um, excess deaths for the other Nordics, they had a harsher 1819 and 1920 winter season than Sweden. So, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. So, are we saying that this year? Are they saying that this year's excess deaths is worse than seventeen, eighteen, nineteen? 18, we had 19? we had two mild years. We're just making up. So we had a lot of. Oh, uh, right. We had a lot Crud. of flammable material. We had a lot of vulnerable. We had a, a greater yeah. vulnerable population. That's why we've been hit hardest. Right, what the I fucking see. government does to make Edna Hightail don't make any fucking difference. How many What's susceptible that? people mm-hmm. do you have? That's what counts. Saying now, aren't they, that uh, it's coming out, I mean, a little bit more in sort of mainstream news that uh, that lockdown's not really having any impact on people's behaviours anymore. I'll, Just don't. I'll put a link in the description. There's a tiny URL uh, mm-hmm. webpage you can go to, and it's got all the scientific papers that show that lockdowns did nothing, mm-hmm. which you won't find, you know, in the mainstream, but you can go and look at them and assess them for yourself. Because they make, well, we know because of Sweden, they didn't make any fucking difference. And we know the mass look at influenza. You would think with the social distancing and the uh, the masks and everything else, that influenza rates would be affected. They're not. It's pointless. Mm-hmm. You know. But anyway, got some uh, local COVID news. Oh. Hello, I'm Andy. I'm the owner of Ships and Giggles. Uh, we charge one penny for our food, but you can pay more if you want. We've had to do this because in desperate times, cause for desperate measures, and it's more than just about the free food. It's to raise awareness for our industry, which is closing left, right and centre, and we need the government to act better than they are because, as a result, we're doing this in order to, for everyone to benefit whether it's someone who's got no money or suffering financial difficulties, whether it's to keep people in jobs, whether it's to keep us busy, keep us sane, this is the reason we're doing it. Uh, there's no reason why I wouldn't. Yeah, I was quite shocked when I went on the Metro and I saw Andy Mack. He's a, he's a bit of a celeb around our parts. Is he? Yeah, not familiar with him. He, no. Do you remember, Is it was it called Max Bar? Oh, did he run that, Max? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, got shut, he got shut down for like, always letting underage people in. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. 
Yeah, comes to the ships and giggles, has he? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, he was in the Metro. Right. And uh, Shane from P-Town, quick off the mm-hmm. dart, got him, got him. He's uh, just released a podcast where he's talking to him. Obviously. He's always nice. there, that P-Town, isn't he? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he's like a ninja, podcasting ninja. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've got some other local COVID news. Go on then. The roadblock, the COVID roadblock on Fletcher Road has been lifted, finally. Which one's Fletcher Road? Where uh, Screwfix and all the builders' merchants are. Where was there a roadblock? They shut the road at one end. Why? Because of COVID. <laughs> yeah, Why? I, don't, I don't compute. Have you not seen these roadblocks? Right? Do you not go out? Yeah. I'd say, I've seen, seen not seen roadblocks. I've seen temporary cycle lanes. Yeah, COVID bike routes. So yeah. they've had the bike routes, and yeah, they've just been shutting roads. I mean, in March, they shut Fletcher Road at the Deepdale Road end. They just dropped these. Uh, <laughs> they look like giant planters, like wooden planters that right. are just filled with hardcore, just weights. And yeah. they just drop them. Uh, yeah. Drop There's them in. one off London Road as well. There is. Drop them in the middle of the road, put a COVID sign on it, just shut the road. So you had to go, <laughs> you had to go down Deepdale, turn left at Prism, route, route back. To get into industrial estate and then fuck around on way around, on way out. But what's uh, the point in that? Because they're just fucking dicks, aren't they? <laughs> Go, what is the point? Hello. We've got a pandemic. We better oh, shut some minor roads. That's how the virus gets around. Yeah, I, I never understood it, but yeah, just a massive inconvenience for me because I, I go there every day, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's been lifted, so yeah. <laughs> Uh, right, last piece of COVID news. Oh, good. Uh, Maureen from Barnsley. Oh, classic Maureen. She was catapulted to stardom this week after this yeah. Uh, yeah, this classic Vox Pop. Yeah. Uh, I think it's all ridiculous. <laughs> we should never have been in lockdown. All the people who are vulnerable should have been helped and kept on safe. And all the rest of us, I'm 83. I don't give a sod. I look at it this way. I've not got all that many years left of me, and I'm not going to be fastened in a house when the government have got it all wrong. We need... How can we get the country on its feet, money-wise? Where's all the money? By the end of this year, there's going to be millions of people unemployed, and you know who's going to pay for it? All the young ones. Not me, because I'm going to be dead. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (coughs) I think I've got a new idol. Mm -hmm. Yeah, summed it up for me. True. Probably what my mum says that, to be honest with you. She's 79. Oh, fuck it. it. If I were 80, I I wouldn't want to be old up at home. No. You've only got so long left. You want to see your family, don't you? Yeah. But, you know, Neil Ferguson says otherwise. Fucking hell. I mean, it's been in the news a lot, him, recently, about um, sort of like the efficacy of the lockdown and stuff. He's still heading up that thing at Imperial College, isn't he? The task force or whatever. The problem with sages is that they don't have any proper immune, immunologists on board. They've lots of mathematicians. And uh, one thing that's going to come out of this is that the public's confidence in in, in bodies like sage and science is going to really uh, take a big hit, unfortunately. But, you know... Mm. Let's, uh, shall we move on from COVID news? Yes. Yeah. 
Matt, you and your uh, good lady wife had a bit of a shot this week, didn't you, when you went to watch a, a Disney classic? We did, yeah. It was uh, Jungle Book, and it comes with an advisory warning that uh, some of the things um, in there are potentially offensive. I can't remember the exact wording, but they said they won't take it down because we should discuss these things or something. Something I mean, like we that. don't we don't let wolves raise our children anymore like we used to. So maybe that's that's what it's referring to. Yeah, I was just yeah, and we, and we we were stumped as to what it was in Jungle Book, and then Phil enlightened us. Uh, oh, it was King, King Louis, wasn't it? It's King Louis. He's thought of as a, a lazy stereotype of a a black man or something. Who's your uh, favourite character in the Jungle Book? Uh, Baloo. Yeah, who's your second favourite? Um, Bagheera. Oh, I'd have said King Louis. Really? Baloo, King Louis, yeah. Uh, well, the thing is about Baloo, I mean, I mean, how do you determine the race of any of them? <laughs> They're fucking animals. They're animals, yeah. 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 It's a nonsense, um, isn't it? I mean, I, I suppose there is a way that King Louis speaks that you would associate with a black guy, I guess. Because he but is a black guy? I, I don't know. Um, and I suppose, I, I, in some ways, I would have thought Baloo was, could be a black guy. Yeah, certainly. I mean, they do that that call and repeat, don't they, when they're singing? Mm. I want to be like you. And, and, it, and it's a jazz song. And it's like, yeah. it's scat, isn't it? They're improvising. and It's scat? <laughs> yeah, like the scat man. It's that form yeah. of jazz. I mean, it's 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 an artistic yeah. expression. It's nothing to do with yeah. fucking. Yeah, at first I thought it was like to do with the depictions of like Indians wearing loincloths or something. It wasn't. It's, you know, we shouldn't be thinking of Indians like that anymore or something. I don't know. The thing but is, then, yeah. I thought the way um, Mowgli and there's only really two humans in it, Mowgli and the girl he meets at the end. And I thought that was like yeah. a tactful representation of a native people. I didn't think it was. No. So, yeah, I, I don't think that was that was it, was it? it was, I think no, it was it just the King be, Louis. It must be King Louis. But the other thing is, is I, I always I remember watching the, this is the original one. is the one I watched the most of all, all the Disney films, except for Cinderella. Mm. And... Um, it was King Louis used to freak me out for some reason, though. He was scary. I thought he was scary. Right. Him and Carr, obviously. Ah, oh, yeah. Well, because they, they're trying to capture him, aren't they? What's that, sorry? They're trying to ca- they try and capture him, don't they? They, they try and ab- abduct him, the monkeys. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. I found, well, I found all of the monkeys scary, yeah, when he grabbed him. Because Blue's, like, lovely, isn't he? Yeah. You don't want to... Um, be kidnapped from Baloo. It's uh, Baloo's a. Gone. No, come. On. I was just gonna say, have you have you watched the like the, I say live action, but you know CGI one. Yeah. Um, because I find Baloo's at the beginning of that is a bit more. He's a bit meaner. In the live action one, where he's got him climbing up the, the cliffs, to poke off the honey for him. I mean, essentially, Baloo the Bear is a selfish nihilist, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. No responsibilities. Yeah. You know, it's the bear necessities. That's all we need. Exactly. He won't pick up a weight and carry it. 
Willow, as is his burden. He won't carry, he won't bear his cross. No. It actually reminds me, I've got this clip, uh, one of the uh, producers sent us this clip from Larry Elder. Are you, are you familiar with Larry Elder? He's no. a, a black guy from America. I think he does talk radio. He's made documentaries, like a political, uh, social commentator. Right. And he was talking to um, like some sort of crowd. I don't know whether it was some sort of demonstration or anything, but I thought it was interesting what he had to say on this sort of issue of race. We are being manipulated. That's right. The number one problem facing the black community is not racist cops. It's not income inequality. It's not climate change. The number one problem facing the black community is the lack of fathers in the home. Seventy percent of black kids are raised without fathers. And forget about elder. Barack Obama said a kid raised without a father is five times more likely to be poor and commit crime. Nine times more likely to drop out of school. 20 times more likely to end up in jail. Now, the question is, why have we gone from 25% of black kids born outside of wedlock in 1965 to 70% today? And the answer is, it's the welfare state. The welfare state is incentivizing women to marry the government and allowing men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And that's what we ought to be talking about. But we're not having that conversation because, again, they are manipulating us. They want us to think about racism, racism, racism. Oh, that's pretty insightful, and it sort of ties mm. into the the overreaction we have now from the corporate world. Do you remember, like three years ago, when it was just a bunch of crazy students, and uh, when Brett Brett Weinstein got kicked out of Evergreen College, and oh, it's just the you know these these young kids they don't know they don't know what's going on yet, and it's just it's just in the academy, whereas now it's coming into the corporate world and Disney, this ideology. So I thought that sort of tied in actually that clip we got sent. Hmm. So it's not the only film. I've got a list here. Six, not of all films, surely. <laughs> Sixteen films have the warning, including The Goonies. Yeah, right. I can see. I can see Goonies yeah. in there for obvious reasons. Gets a pass <laughs> for uh, the Chinese lad. <laughs> what? Next film. <laughs> no, go on. What's your reason for the Goonies? Um, because of the Hey You Guys guy. Yeah. Nope. Because he's got a disability. No. No, it's, it was the the Chinese guy. Because oh. it is portrayed as a stereotype of being good at technology and mathematics. All oh, right. That's why well, the Goonies. I, I, I thought they were. Well, yes, they are. <laughs> well, we all know that stereotypes are based, have a, like a, a seed of reality. That's why they, they, are, they work. As a stereotype, yeah, yeah, but you can't, you can't admit that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the next film on the list? Aliens. Oh, is this because of the Latina? Is it robots? Aliens follows the story of Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, who is sent to a planet to make contact with the terraforming Connolly and colony. <laughs> terraforming Connolly and asked to fight them to survive a spokesperson for Sky said the film contains the disclaimer because it features a non-Hispanic actress playing the role of a Hispanic character oh so she wasn't a Latina right she called Hernandez or something in it so she wasn't really. Oh God, what was her name? 
No, like no one remembers. So what's <laughs> <laughs> I can remember because she was she had probably the, head, the headband. Yeah, the first time I saw oh. her, she's probably a lesbian. Vasquez. Vasquez, <laughs> yeah. It's either Hernandez or Vasquez, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, what else? Uh, what other films were there on the list? I think I've lost the list now. Uh, Aliens, uh, Dumbo, Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> Tropic, oh, well, yeah. Tropic Thunder, The Jazz Singer, The Littlest Rebel, Lone Ranger, Balls of Fury, The Last Samurai. Blah blah blah. Was Zulu not on there? No. What was Dumbo? Dumbo. Now is that the crow? Is that the Jim Crow? There is. Oh, there is. Ca- there is one of these that's that's pretty sketch. It's. I think it's Dumbo <laughs> where it's the the crows who talk. Right. Three crows. That's yeah. uh, not not, not the vultures Book. in not the vultures. No, they're the, the fake beetles, aren't they? Yeah. In oh, yeah. No, in Dumbo, it's the crow, and he's called Jim. Jim Crow. Ooh. So, and what yeah. does he talk about? Like you know, separating <laughs> stuff or something. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, right. Okay. Well, we'll give him. We'll give him Dumbo then. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Uh, we spoke about um, a spooky remake of The Witches last week. Oh, it's got. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, Go on, go on anyway. There's two further spooky remakes afoot. Yeah. Ghostbusters? No. Uh, that's a... Oh, my God. Yep. The Craft? Oh, yeah. Right. Is Nev Campbell still in it? No. No, it looks like a bit of a tween sort of... Uh, it, I watched the trailer. It looks gash. Boo. It looks a bit tweeny and uh, a bit, a bit naff. I don't think you can replace that. Is it Feruza Balk, is she called? Do you remember her from the first film? She just looks like a psychopath. I've never watched The Craft, you know, I don't think. It's one of the the very rare films that Phil has watched and I haven't. Mm. And the uh, the third spooky remake, which my missus told me about, is Hocus Pocus has been remade. Yeah, I I think I've read the same article as you. With the original cast, Bette Midler. Oh yeah, yeah, Feruza Bulk. Yeah. yeah, she was in lots of things. Is like the freaky one, wasn't she? Yeah, bit typecast. <laughs> yes. Uh, Christine Taylor. Yeah, some faces I recognise here. Robin Tunney. Recognise her? She was like a nice. I don't know what she was in. What happens in it? Uh, I think Feruza Bolt dies. Oh. I think she gets. Um, I think she gets like the bad sauce. Does she get the craft? I think she gets the bad craft, and uh, <laughs> goes a bit dark. And the other three have to have to beat her in a in a wand fight or something. It's a film about <laughs> cheese slices. <laughs> yeah, and Hocus Pocus is number three. Right, the original okay. cast. Okay, Bette Midler. Mm. Um, is it a remake or the a sequel? <clears throat> I think it's a remake. Right? Yeah, I mean, got, I'm not. It's got the same people in there, maybe. Yeah, uh, Ben Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najimini. Is that who it is? Is it not that? Is it not the witch's witch? I thought it was her. Isn't Angelica it? Houston? No, mm-hmm. no. It's the large. Do you remember? Um, 
the comic relief in Sister Act. The nun. Yeah. I don't know. Whoopi Goldberg wasn't the comic relief in that. She was the. Uh, well, was she the was she the dramatic? Have you, when was the last time you watched Sister Act? That's probably like nineteen ninety eight. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here, and I'm gonna say Sister Act is a top twenty greatest film ever made. It's five map <laughs> film. Wow, where, where do you put nuns on the run? <laughs> oh, nuns on the run! I used to exactly. love that one. That must be higher than Sister Act. No do you remember, did you ever notice that Hollywood gets like in a theme? <laughs> a nun theme. Well, with anything. So like you'll get a slew of like ghosts, you know, like remakes of witch yeah. films. It's the whole well that was successful. Let's copy it and make us some money. Yeah, or like Until really, twindles. really late sequels. So there's a Scream Five with the original cast. Yeah, Courtney Cox is back, isn't she? Yeah. Why? Why? Dinero. The Dinero. dollar. Do you know um, who's in the supporting cast of Sister Act? I can't remember. Harvey, Ka- Harvey Keitel. Right. Um, Dame. Go on. Dame. What's she called? The old lady. Judy Dench. Not Vera Lynn. Judy Dench? No, the other one. Edna Everidge. <laughs> Helen Mirren? No. They're all the dames. That's, Shakespearean. That's Margaret Thatcher. She was in the Was Harry she... Potter films. Uh, With a Scottish accent. Um, Pref- McGonagall? Professor McGonagall? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. I can't remember her She name. was in it, in Sister Act. Right. Sister Mary Clarence. <laughs> Can't remember her Ty- name. Typecast much. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, should we should we move on? Because uh, yeah. Um, this is a record-breaking podcast. Uh, like, this is like this is like the the early teens. Joe Biden's got some advice for the cops on how to de-escalate situations. Oh God. I don't know where I've put it, though. <laughs> it's a, a big shot in the ass. Yeah, but the, beyond that, you have to teach people how to de-escalate circumstances. De-escalate. So instead of anybody coming at you and the first thing you do is shoot to kill, you shoot them in the leg. <laughs> shoot them in the leg. Just blow Sweep a leg the off. Leg. <laughs> Sweep the leg. <laughs> so this is Joe Biden, who's... <laughs> part of a campaign that's sowing divide and um, I suppose malfeasance in America he's he de-escalating it with, with Trump I don't follow well like the campaigns you know you mean? going against each other and shouting at each other in the debates and stuff the last debate uh, there was no sort of shouting or anything it's quite civil. Yeah. I think it's because they were told off, wasn't it? Yeah, the button. Yeah. Well, I think Trump realised that after that first performance, it was counterproductive. Mm. So he so he toned it down. Mm. Uh, speaking of the man himself, um, 
You know, the, the Beatles famously got caught and caused controversy by stating they were bigger than Jesus. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Donald's not going to make that, that mistake. Somebody said to me the other day, you're the most famous person in the world by far. I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. They said, yes, you are. I said, no. They said, who's more famous? I said, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to have an argument. Hey, I'm not having any arguments. Jesus Christ. I'm not going to take any chances. I'll give it, I guarantee. And let me look up and I'll say, and it's not even close. <laughs> he's practicing his stand-up. Uh, I mean, he's, he's obviously joking. Big. You can see him laughing at himself. It's almost self-deprecating. Almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> It's interesting. He's an interesting character. I'm not saying I like him or anything, but ah, uh, he's interesting. <laughs> it's just he knows how to play a crowd. Yeah, and it's win at all costs, isn't it? It's that definite. Yeah, now he'll do anything to get to the top, won't he? Do you know? I think the only reason he ran is because Obama said. But did you see that that press ball where Obama had a go at him, no. saying one thing's for. Oh, I can't do I can't do Barack Obama, but one thing's for certain: you're never going to have my job. You'll never be able to call you, yourself the president. Right, it's almost okay. like that put a bee in his bonnet, and they said, "Well, right, fuck you, right? I will do." Yeah, it's almost just, it's almost spiteful. I can believe that. Yeah, yeah I can as well. It, it comes across as having that kind of personality, but again, it's dangerous to speculate, isn't it? You don't see someone. Where's he going to go next? Space. Space president. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's rumours if he loses, he's going to run in 24. <laughs> oh, God. He'll still be younger than Biden, probably. <laughs> well, yeah, he'll always be younger than Biden. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's just how <laughs> things work. Time works. <laughs> how causality is healed. <laughs> oh, my God. Um... Oh my God! Uh, you know our, our favorite daytime TV presenter, Philip Schofield. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's been on the radio and stuff this week talking about the event where he came out. Oh, not right. the million pound cube. Is it because we've all forgotten? I think there's some more got... bad press coming. No, Has he changed his mind? No, he's got a book out. Oh, oh here we go. Uh, Christmas. Christmas yeah. number one. That's, yeah. that's that time of year. Yeah, I can't think so, of anything worse. So cynical. Mm. And uh, <laughs> uh, the first, he was talking to Chris Evans on Radio Two, and the, uh, I listened to it bits of it, and it was striking how he, he talked about it being. He kept referring it, referring to it as the event, and he was talking about the PR, how the PR had to be involved, and the lawyers, and they had to read what he'd written down and okay it and. And all this lot. So I, I cut all, all that stuff out. I just Why? Took I wonder if he's... If because he's it's been... so stage-managed. What you watch yeah. on TV isn't real. Well, I'm just wondering if the reason he had to get lawyers involved is because I wonder if he's if he's been... Because he, he said his hand hadn't been forced. But I wonder if it has. And there, must, uh, there was something coming out. Who knows? We'd have to get through the web of the PR machine exactly. to get through that, wouldn't we? Mm. 
But um, I clipped the last last minute or so of his um, his interview because I think you might enjoy the end. Okay. I'd, Holly and I had gone out for um, a long sort of it wasn't a drink or lunch really we were just discuss- it was a meeting where we had drinks but we stayed very sober because which is unlike us because it was a serious <laughs> uh, serious subject you know what do I do what am I going to do how are we going to do this and I said I've thought about it a lot and I think what I should do is that I'll we'll do it on a, th- a Thursday Thursday morning because we don't do Fridays I said we'll do it on a Thursday morning and, I, and then um, you know I, I, want, I want you to interview me and then um, I'll go and you carry on and we'll get you know sort of someone in to do the rest of the show and she burst out laughing and said are you joking so i said well what, what, what i can't think of another she did that's ridiculous you honestly believe that you are going to do something like that and then get up and go without me um she said we do this and we do it together and we leave together so it has to be a friday and then we found the friday that actually worked um because holly has been astonishing like that uh, make me cry literally the best mate <laughs> literally the best mate uh, it's a bit it's a bit uh, it's a bit cringe isn't it now literally the best mate the thing is, is if he has been closeted all these years for whatever reason I imagine it is it's quite a big thing, isn't it? Because he's got two daughters and he's been married yeah. or whatever. And the thing is, you don't know what's kind of happened in his relationship. He might have been li- living, having, sorry, a, an open relationship with, with agreement of his wife. It could be lots of things in between or whatever. So I suppose it is quite daunting, isn't it? If you're, if you're not being cynical for him to come out, but then to kind of promote his book off the back of it and do these emotional interviews and do the whole stage manage coming out. It's a bit. Literally. The problem with it. The best mate. Yeah. People are coming out all the time. It's not a, it's not a, I, I understand what you said and it could be a big thing for him and that's great, but it's the whole, the whole, you're right. The whole, it almost feels fake. Yeah. But when he did that, that's why um, I preempted it with when he was talking about how it was stage managed and the PR and the lawyers were involved. This was mm. the event. Yeah, and it could have been as simple as, oh, yeah, it's in the papers or whatever. And Phil just says, "Oh, I'm gay. I'm, I'm <laughs> gay now." And I don't think anyone would have batted an eyelid, and that wouldn't have sold many books. And the other thing as well is, it's quite a quinky dink that it was all starting to come out in the papers that he was a bitch on set, a la, a la Ellen, Ellen Generis or whatever his surname is. Well, it was there was a thing boiling up between him and Ruth Langsford, wasn't there? Yeah, that's still there, obviously. Well, yeah. 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 It's a bit... Uh, oh, no, I'm not going to say that. Well, it's a bit sort of uh, Kevin Spacey. Oh, no. oh, by the way, I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the deflection. Yeah. 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 Never mind all that. Um, <laughs> Never want to just go, we know Kevin. Mm. I don't know. It's literally the best mate. <laughs> well, at least we got more clips. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly, yeah. Got the eyes, so. Mm. Well, shall we, uh, shall we adjourn? Yes, that mm. was the longest podcast we've done this week. Yeah. It's nearly midnight. That's it. In, in real In, in real old time. money. <laughs> I got hairy cunt! Because I'm literally mm. a... Oh. <laughs> Alright, well we're back next week with Dave Matheson. We're going to learn about some yeah. star myths. Big Dave. Yeah, get your... Uh, start doing your research now. Oh, did you see the... Um, they did a little... Um, him and Cometan had a little uh, video conversation. Yes. Did you see it? Yeah, it was good then. Yeah, I had a bit of a Silla Black moment. I might have to buy a hat. A hat? Yeah. A condom. For a wedding? For the wedding, yeah. That was a joke. (laughs) 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 All right, then. Well, we'll see you next week. It really bothers me. Uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, don't forget to send your shit in send, your, send us your shit no don't send us shit <laughs> come here you goose you big communist <laughs> and it really bothers me yes yes funny bickering who the fuck's that yeah me excuse me excuse me excuse me I've been coming to terms with the fact that I'm a Marxist I'm literally a communist They give him a, they give him a big fat shot in the ass and this is such a crock of shit. Yeah.